Welcome to the Mad Ones. I'm your definitely respects women, even though they definitely belong in the kitchen host, Cam Harless. And with me tonight is your Eats Tofurky on Purpose guest host, Cody Cook of Cantus Firmus. How you doing, Cody? How you doing? Hey, I, I appreciate you having me on here. I was surprised, honestly, because um, not only am I a man, um, yeah, <laughs> but, or at least identify as one, but uh, also you're a big celebrity now. I, mean, I figured you'd be too busy hanging out with Glenn Greenwald and the Tucker Carlson <laughs> green room to talk to the likes of me, but... I think it really shows uh, what a humble and down to earth person you are that you'd have me on again. And as a co-host, even <laughs> it's true. I mean, I, I have become, fa it's so funny. People are saying that I'm famous. I'm like, I now have 7,000 Twitter followers. If that's famous, uh, your, your standards are lower than mine, but yeah, I was on Tucker Carlson and it was odd. Yeah. <laughs> well, I've never been on Tucker Carlson. I think I've got 12 Twitter followers, so you're still ahead of me. <laughs> uh, well, I'm going to ask you now, what have you been up to? Because I don't think, when was the last time we spoke on the show? We talked um, about um, Enemy on, Love. D'Angelo, I think. Enemy Love, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. John's great. Love John. Um, yeah, I just, I've been trying to stay busy, uh, getting ready for a new baby, um, writing some different articles and trying to find homes for them. Um, and I'm trying to learn how to write children's books because uh, I've got some ideas for a couple. Um, so working on that a little bit. Um, and uh, that's kind of me, man. How about you? Uh, oh, you know, just living, breathing, thriving. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm essentially taking over Monica's spot on the propaganda report. Oh. It's not official yet, but it does happen a lot now. So um, <laughs> I've been very busy. That and it's it's the super busy season in my job. So I've been like just full blast, full bore for the last couple of weeks. And I'm just exhausted, if I'm being honest. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. But let's let let's do this show thing because we were late. I'm sorry, guys. I'm I'm dumb. And when when me and the guest talked about the time, um, I did not read what he said, apparently, because in my mind, I'd said 830 and I just kept I just did not read. I'm I'm dumb and you should not watch stuff that I do, though. I appreciate it. Um, but before we get started, I do want to let you know that this show is 100 percent brought to you by fans and patrons. So hit like, subscribe, and share the show with your friends. There are all sorts of topics that we've covered inside and outside of Christianity. So share them with someone who might gain something from them. Um, also, uh, if you want to catch occasional early episodes, Zoom hangouts, and gain my eternal gratitude, you can hit up patreon.com slash themadones. Um, also, I just released brand new shirts because you, you saw the new intro, and I, I have to make a new one every time I do a new like theme with the logo. So those are now up at we are the mad slash store. And also I had my beautiful wife actually design a feminine shirt for us. So we, we did something for the ladies. Uh, you can check that out there as well. It's very pretty and not something I would have ever made because I'm just not feminine. You believe that, right? I'm trying to, I've been trying to convince people my whole life. Um, but let's get to the show. So, Joining the Mad Ones tonight is a man of study. He's a husband, a father. He's a New Testament nerd. He's got a bachelor's, a master's, and is currently working on his PhD on the apocalyptic Paul. He's ordained and is currently on YouTube. Not right now. Well, I mean, he is. He will yeah. be in a second. But he has a YouTube channel uh, that's the New Testament Theologist, and you can join him in rigorous theological analysis of the New Testament. So please welcome Mr. Nick Quint. I'm so glad that I asked you how to pronounce your last name because I would have thrown that ant in there, like for sure. 
Mm-hmm. Everyone does. Half the time I just let them and then correct them after just to watch their expression. Like, oh my God, I did it wrong. I'm like, had you asked, like Cam, y'all would have been good, but <laughs> thank well, you for that very I, I, You're welcome. I, I, I do... I do like to ask, there have been a few people that I was like, okay, so how do you say your name? Because I don't want to be that guy that has to be corrected on screen for <laughs> saying the name wrong. Um, but yeah, so uh, over the last couple of months, I've been re- I've been not deeply studying, but thinking about the role of women in ministry um, and how that is supposed to work, um, especially with some of the the, the last book I read and some of the concept I've been uh, meandering th- through and thinking about. Um, and so I kind of want to t- have this conversation. I want to hear the, um, the argument for women in ministry uh, because, you know, there are a lot of people who talk against it. And so I kind of know all of their arguments for the most part. And so, you know, I wanted to have you come on because that's, I, I, you know, I found you because um, my friend, our friend, mutual friend, Chris Date, um, who I think we're all conditionalists here, by the way, Um, (laughs) unless you're not. I am. (laughs) Yeah. So it's, you know, uh, Chris Date had has been on and off saying things about um, complementarianism uh, versus egalitarianism, which I feel like these words don't really work as well as you'd think in these circumstances. I feel like better words could be used. Um, and he tagged you and I was like, okay. And so, uh, thank you, Chris date. <laughs> um, but, uh, I, another funny thing was when we were in that space between where I thought we were going to start the show and you thought we were going to start the show. Um, I was like, okay, what can we do? That's an hour. I can still keep it on schedule. And I, I called another friend named Nick that I haven't spoken to in like two or three years who is on the other side. And I was like, maybe he's not busy. Maybe for the first hour he can give his take. And then when the other Nick comes in, we could have a battle of the Knicks, but you know, he leaves and then you give your argument. Cause I don't want to do debates. I don't like debates. That's not my thing. (laughs) Right. Um, But I do want you to be able to get into that and get into your argument for it. Um, But before we do that, I gave you an introduction but I think it's best if people tell us about themselves because I could have missed anything. So uh, tell us a little bit about where you are, who you are, and how you got to this um, position, if you will. Sure. Uh, and how's it going, Cody? No, long time no <laughs> talk. Good to see you too. Yeah, yeah, man. Good to see you. Uh, yeah. Uh, married to Allison. We live in Southern California. Uh, looking to move as soon as the Lord wills it. Uh, Hopefully someplace hotter and um, less crazy. We're in Florida, and it's more crazy in a different way, but in a good way. I could deal with that kind of crazy. That kind of crazy I could deal with. Uh, (laughs) But yeah, uh, did my master's in New Testament, PhD student, very, very, very slowly. Um, Was a pastor for, it's it's like three years and seven months technically. But I, it's like, do I round that down to three, or do I round that down to four? Round it up to four. So I just go with four years, three to four years. Yeah. I uh, was a pastor there for a while. Uh, and yeah, th- this issue is one of those issues that hate calling it an issue, but it is one of those things where you're kind of born into it, regardless of whatever opinion, you know, you're, you're, if you're Episcopalian, you're born into a certain, at least way of thinking about the conversation, you know, right. or Southern Baptist or whomever. Um, I was raised in a uh, Calvary Chapel background, which is essentially Southern Baptist, but more charismatic. Yeah. And I was raised charismatic. Yeah. 
so you know you know exactly what i what i went through so cheers to you on that (laughs) you're still a pretty charismatic guy i think Oh yeah, I, I I I still definitely I'm not a cessationist whatsoever. Oh, I'm um, I'm a continuous continuation, hundred percent. I'm just not charismatic. Right. I think you're charismatic, Nick. No, I'm definitely not. <laughs> I more of this, and I'm certainly not. Going to be. <laughs> I was gonna say it's not that hard to be more charismatic than the Southern Baptist. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> uh, but yeah, uh, very. Um, my family wasn't like that, but pretty, you know, just patriarchal. Everything's assumed a certain way, and there's no kind of right. conversation about it, you know. And then, you know, I went to Biola, met my wife, and um, she didn't feel called to ministry, and she still doesn't. But it was one of those, like, hey, you know, if we're going to date, I've got an opinion on this. I've, you know, she'd written tons of papers on it. She had gone through all of that. She was raised in an American Baptist context that was um, egalitarian in the sense of it was assumed, but you could, be, you didn't have to be egalitarian, and that's kind of one of the perks right. of being American Baptist is. Um, denominationally, we're egalitarian, but at the same time, we're Baptist. So that comes right. with its own local church kind of deciding how that all works out. So, um, but she had wrestled with it and came to a changed conclusion. She she didn't believe in women in ministry, or at least egalitarianism, I should say. And we can parse those terms out later. I'm with you. I hate the terms. I don't think they mean anything. Um, but uh, she challenged me to go back and study. And I studied it for about a year and then moved from... Uh, complementarianism to egalitarianism, but I still had questions that took about five years for me to settle on. Gotcha. Um, I'm the kind of person that I'm very slow to change my mind for better or worse. It's not because I'm stubborn, but because I don't like to be wrong. Yeah. Um, I'm big on that. Um, so it took me a very long time to change my mind. And I still have a few questions here and there that I like resolved, but, uh, but yeah, changed my mind. Then went to seminary, uh, learned more Greek and then, um, yeah, ended up here in Southern California, um, looking for pastoral ministry work and, uh, trying to stay sane in unsane times. <laughs> Were you saying your, your wife was complementarian when you met her? No, she was egalitarian, but she oh. had become, uh, she was raised in an egalitarian context. Okay. Had become, And this is from a long conversation ago. We haven't talked about this recently, but was at least, I think her and her dad had a debate about it a lot, like when she was much younger and he was egalitarian in the church, complementarian-ish in the home, kind mm-hmm. of. And that's, of yeah. course, separate things. Um, uh, but he changed her mind on it, and she then changed his mind on uh, marriage and all that sort of stuff. But that was over a period of years and studying. She had lots of people who, you know, encouraged her to do academic work and study. She's doing her PhD now too in systematic theology at, at Aberdeen. Um, but she, cha- you know, she challenged me to just, you know, go back to the Bible and study for yourself because if you're dating someone who thinks she it, uh, could be called the ministry, you mm-hmm. know, she just didn't think she was, but could be called the ministry. Um, it's going to be harder on you with your friends, given where I come from. Mm, right. and it certainly wasn't fun. But uh, part of that was my problem being stubborn and wanting to fight about it. And yeah. hopefully the Lord has sanded off some of those rough edges since then. <laughs> uh, but yeah, generally uh, well, speaking, let, that's kind of the picture. Gotcha. Okay, well, let me do this. Normally, this is the point in time when Jessica, uh, my co-host who's on a break right now, um, would say, what are these words that you're using? Could you explain them so that everyone knows what you're saying? Um, and these are the terms that people have settled on. You and I probably agree these are not good terms. But uh, complementarian at its core affirms that men and women are equal in terms of dignity and value before a holy God. Um, but men have been given a specific role as uh, spiritual provider, leader, um, servant leader, however you want to phrase that up, in the home yeah. and in the church, although there is debate over if that extends to the church or not. Uh, Allison's Greek professor at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, Grant Osborne, was um, mm. egalitarian in church and complementarian in home and saw no mm. conflict yeah. there. So there is nuance yeah. in the debate as far as that goes. But um, 
the idea is that men are given a sort of special role um, to be certain providers or leaders in the home uh, in a way that puts them, you might say, at the top of the pyramid, so to speak. And that, you right. know, just in terms of putting a crude analogy, you know, it's not the best analogy, but that at least give people an image of it. Egalitarian affirms both um, uh, equality, and I hate the term equality already, but the yeah. equality in, in uh, role and in um, giftedness and all that sort of stuff, but doesn't see um, hierarchy as the base of the distinction. They see gender differences as the base of the distinction. Whereas in complementarianism, okay. the belief, generally speaking, depends on the complementarian, but generally speaking, uh, the differences are highlighted in terms of hierarchy, which include biological differences. Egalitarians basically go, we don't affirm the hierarchical aspect of that, but we affirm gender distinctions. I can't have a baby. As much as I might want to try, I can't have a baby. And you yeah. know, even with all our scientific advances today, I still don't think I'd want to have a baby, given what I have I wouldn't to want through. to. I wouldn't want to. Hell no. I have um, five. That's too many. I have enough. <laughs> I'm set. So it's, it's almost better to think of it in terms of you have... Uh, and it's a bad term to use, but you would say something like hierarchicalist. But even then, uh, I have no problem with hierarchy in church. You know, there's pastors and people in charge, like the church functions that way. So patriarchy is a bad word for it because of the negative connotations. But you would say something like male overseer or oversight in the home and or in the church versus um, shared oversight in, in the home or in the church. Because both sides believe in complementarity that... Uh, Men and women are different and we complement each other. You know, what she can do, I can't do. What I can do, she can't do. And that feeds into right. it, so to speak. And that leaves out true patriarch, which means women are genetically inferior, which is kind of the old traditional views until like the mm -hmm. 1800s or so. And that leaves out modern feminism, which basically is women either are identical to men, which I would yeah. disagree with, um, and or um, women are superior, matriarchalism. And right. egalitarianism, in my mind, I would prefer the term mutualism, is situated kind of in the middle between both of those extremes with complementarianism being closer to the hierarchical or patriarchal model, but not itself patriarchal, or at least within that realm. So that's, in a nutshell, the nerdiest way I can say it without going on for another 15 minutes. <laughs> so I, I, I do want to bring up a point related, but before I do that, um, mm -hmm. I have a growing list of words that we use that I think are too muddy for us to be using the way that we do. Um, I think for, for one, I think we can all agree on this hell. Like that's, yeah. that's a word that's, that it's almost not helpful at all anymore. Yeah. It's a garbage word. It doesn't say anything. It's like the word spiritual. Um, it doesn't mean anything. You have to explain it so much. Yeah. And so <clears throat> another one I think is, um, I, uh, also like we talked about complementarian and egalitarian because they're, they're both such loaded terms because like if you, if the way my brain works when I hear complementarianism, I don't think about hierarchies. I think about how we're different and we work together and we more or less complete one another. And right. so like, that's what that means to me, but it's not what that means in the, this context. And so it's extremely frustrating to me. Um, but and that term was there, actually used by the early feminists too. They would, they actually, I think we found, I, I don't have the citation in front of me. I can go find it if someone asks later, but um, early feminists in like the 18 and 1900s used that sort of language to describe how they perceive the God-human relationship and the male-female relationship. So it's it's not a new term. It's it's kind right. of grounded in the abolitionist feminist fun, fundamentalist, actually, you'd probably call it today, uh, movement uh, that women actually, you know, Margaret Fell and all of them that kind of pioneered right. that. Well, in the, the I'll, I'll give you two more. Uh, one that I think is pretty unhelpful is the word soul, um, to be honest. Um, and then the, the final one is the biggest one that I, I'm trying to, uh, I, I think that the word God is unhelpful 
in a lot of ways hmm. because there's so much rep, you know, because it's like if you look at the English, you, you go into a dictionary and you see God with a little g, that means someone who is not Yahweh. Right. And then if you see the capital G, that means Yahweh. But this is the same word. And there's so much Elohim is used in multiple different ways in the, the Bible. And it's a title and people assume it's their name. There's I think it's less helpful than I used to think. I mean, it's a title. It's not it's not a name and people act like it's a name, but I think it's unhelpful. And I'm, I'm trying to work out my feelings on that at this point. <laughs> among well, other things when you have the hijacking of and we see this in all sorts of debates everywhere just across the political theological spectrum words no longer have fixed meanings and if they do have fixed meanings they change so quickly that you know five minutes later you're talking about well what is the soul and then five minutes later it's like right. what are we even talking about here there's so yeah. much to this and so it's one of those where you almost have to drill down and go okay do we all agree that these words are of course nuanced complicated have their histories have their developments but have some sort of base meaning we can all kind of go okay we can build on this yeah. sort of meaning even if we take it and build a house like this an apartment over here and like build on it like that mm -hmm. so i'm with you on that you want this especially when it comes to god because when you say that word i mean uh geographically it means different things mm -hmm. um it, it also has a very personal meaning for a lot of people because people understand god according to how they were taught <clears throat> or according to their life experience. So it's it's already muddied before you get to talking about the actual character and being of Yahweh. And so it's like, there, w w how can we fix this? I don't know. Um, <laughs> but I, I really love that conversation because it's, you know, I, as I've grown, I, I only have a bachelor's degree in biblical studies because I don't, I do not have the money for that and I can't go into any more debt. Um, but as I'm reading, and I feel like I've learned so much more outside of college than I did in, if I'm being honest, I feel like that's crazy. But um, no, I, I, I love these conversations and I love going through things. So, uh, Cody, do you have anything you want to say before I yeah, push so, into the conversation? Yeah, maybe to kind of shift back a little bit to, to Nick's presentation of the definitions. Uh, one thing I, I kind of appreciated was that he was sort of uh, lopping off the extremes <laughs> um, because, I, you know, when you first said, you know, egalitarians believe in differences, I thought, well, not all egalitarians <laughs> because, but, but if we're, if we're sort of putting these biblical parameters um, around it and you can say something about complementarians, there are definitely complementarians that are very patriarchal, that are very um, chauvinistic. Uh, but, you know, I think what we're trying to do is, um, you know, kind of look at, kind of how the Bible hedges us in in different ways here. On the one hand, the Bible tells us a lot of things about the equality of men and women, but it also suggests that there are differences and perhaps, and this is kind of where the debate lies, different functions as well. Um, and, and that's kind of where, you know, I think where we're going to find, uh, you know, obviously the argument is being had. But but I, I liked that you were sort of saying, you know, these are kind of the biblical parameters um, that, that sort of put us you know, if not on the same page, at least on, you know, in the same book. <laughs> right. And, and at least we're arguing over things. It's okay, we, we can go to this point here. And this is where the conversation is. We're not arguing over um, that male is, you know, as Mary Daly, the famous uh, historian and philosopher said, to be, you know, God is male kind of the idea. We're not talking about right. that. We're not going the whole, you know, Christ, uh, Christianity sexist, you know, that sort of thing. We're not, we're kind of, yeah. as you said, we're lopping off this sort of, you know, Kind of narcissistic talk if we can be crude about it this sort of you know we're trying to score rhetorical points and 
you know, I got in trouble with my Calitarian friends because I was like, oh, you're just complementarianism. I'll give you a five minute present. And I gave a five minute presentation, to, you know, in a church about what complementarian was. And they were like, wait, do you believe this? I said, oh, God, no. But this is if you're going to believe it, believe the best form of it. And no complementarian worth her or his salt believes that, you know, um, in, in chauvinism or patriarchalism. That well, is. It, yeah, yeah. So go ahead. I was, I was going to say, yeah, and I think that the first thing that you often hear an egalitarian say is that essentially what complementarians are proposing is chauvinism. And and the first thing you'll hear a complementarian say about egalitarianism is, well, they're denying that there are differences between men and women. They're making men and women interchangeable. You know, before long, it's just we're just we're just going to move into, you know, you know, lesbianism and whatever, because there's no difference between men and women. And that's what they're saying. Right. And and so <laughs> I, I appreciate that, you know, we're not having these these conversations where we sort of make the other side as extreme as possible. And, and hopefully we can agree that those extremes don't belong in the church. No, uh, I, I think it it, it creates, it, it literally creates a sort of theological segregation to use a loaded term, because if you see, if you see the worst of every side as representative, I mean, we see that in politics, right? We, you know, it's, it's easy to put up this, you know, straw person here and go up, oh, see that represents the GOP or the Democrats or the libertarians. Although with the libertarians, we are, they are kind of their own caricature, if I'm honest. I mean, as a former libertarian, we, we kind of are our worst yeah. caricature. Um, as a current libertarian, I, I somewhat agree. Yeah. <laughs> Stay away from our conventions. They are they are parad- they are pure satire, and but they're serious, which is even weirder. What um, the libertarian conventions? Yeah, it basically turns into uh, Reddit embodied, which is a hysterically awful thing to see and witness. I think the funniest thing that I ever saw was I don't know if it was the, the a convention <clears throat> or another. My goodness, my my I keep having to clear my throat. Um, didn't want everyone to hear that. And I, I kind of wanted with, to hear I'm that, good with the right. mute. Think... Um, <laughs> no, one of the funniest things I ever saw in the libertarian world was there was an event. I think it was around the 2016 convention um, when Eric July was playing music, and there's this video of the people in the crowd like trying to headbang and stuff, and it was the most uh, cringy. Like, I, I, it hurt me to watch. Um, but yeah, no, I'm I'm. It's so funny because it's like I'm post liberty, not post. I don't want to use that that phraseology. <laughs> I'm not libertarian anymore. I'm not connected to the the post libertarian stuff. Um, but um, I almost feel like now I'm maybe even more so than I was before because I've just dropped all that crap from my life. Because <laughs> <laughs> I don't I don't need it. Um, but let me let me give you some ground from where I am. Um, literally two or three days ago, I finished the lost world of Adam and Eve by, uh, John H. Walton. I don't know if you've read that. Um, but this is, this was kind of, I didn't realize this when I started reading it, but this was a a thought that I was having, you know, we have the, the verse in Galatians. It talks about you're neither male nor female free slave nor free, you know, um, Greek Jew, whatever. Um, but I've, I've always wondered how this works because we look we look at the garden and we see that a lot of these situations and the, the way we see things are based out of the curse rather than out of the ideal that God had. And so while I was reading this book, I think one of the more interesting points that he made, and I really, I really recommend reading it just to challenge yourself and to, to stretch your mind and, and then challenge that and figure it out. I'm, I'm in the post moment now where I'm going to go and challenge all of the things that he said and try to suss these things out. Um, but one of the interesting things that he said was he kind of believes that um, the creation of Adam and Eve 
could very well have been a vision that Adam saw. And so it wasn't a literal rib necessarily, but it was the word that's used for rib also means side, like a side yep. of beef. Yep. And so he saw it as a cutting in half, which made men and women um, ontological equals. Um, and so they were they were equal in their <clears throat> their nature and their standing. And their job that was given in Genesis was um, to cultivate, to take dominion of this sacred space that was Eden. And so in that kind of way, they were both like priests of Eden. And it seems like there may have been some form of hierarchy in that when you're reading it. But I, I was sitting there and thinking, why is it that more churches aren't, I mean, I'm not saying that every every church needs to have a male pastor or every church needs to have a female pastor, but why aren't there more churches with both working together, like in Eden? So that's where my brain is. That's where my conception is right now. And so, you know, I just want to hear your argument now, because I don't know. I'm in the middle ground of wrestling this out, and uh, let's let's do it. Let's let's hit the verses. Let's hit the, hit your argument, and let's let's flesh this out. Yeah, uh, looking at if I remember correctly, the Hebrew word. Um, yeah, rib is not the the best translation for that. Right. It would be something like excited beef, but also it, the I think it's Salah. Uh, my Hebrew is not as good as my Greek. My Greek's wonderful, but my Hebrew is it's been a while. <laughs> uh, which is where I got A's in Hebrew and got A minuses in Greek, and I published stuff in Greek. I've not published a single thing in Hebrew. Um, but Salah, if I if I'm saying that right, yes, that's um, correct. Refers to the side not only of objects but of sacred objects. You know, um, the side of the Solomonic Temple, the side of God's holy mountain, which mm -hmm. I think Walton's thesis holds um, because if, if that is true, God has assigned a sort of sacredness or sacred architecture um, to the human person. Um, yeah. So when Adam and Eve are, whether it's splits or she's taken out of, you know, that kind of imagery. Mm -hmm. I, I think splitting is probably the best kind of understanding yeah. of how that worked. Um, that's where the vision, I think it's interesting. I think it's a, it's a little, I don't think it's wrong. It's just one of those, I'm like, uh, yeah, okay. That's, that's a helpful heuristic device to kind of explain how yeah. this might have worked. Um, any more than, you know, God's got dirt under his fingernails because he literally made the earth man, you know, the Adam, you know, right. Adam. You know, um, but I think what we see in Genesis one and two, of course, is God's ideal. This is how God wanted creation to function. You have uh, ambassadors or representatives because that's what the image does. The image represents yeah. God in, you might say, human form, which, of course, Jesus does, of course, in a similar but, of course, exalted in different way. So you have Adam and Eve, or at least in Genesis one, the splitting of, or rather Genesis two, you have the splitting of the the earth person, the earth man, and then you have him. Uh, you know, calling her, you know, not naming, but calling her. And that calling language is used throughout um, Genesis 1 and 2 to denote not a naming, but a classification. You know, yeah. God named these things. God gave an them order. some sort of, yeah, an order, or here's kind of the order or the function of these things. Right. These are, Adam names the animals, and it's not that he's saying, you know, all these things, but he's saying, oh, these are these. It's identifying right. what the object or the entity or the thing is. Can, Can I see that in just a second? Yeah, go, go ahead, please. Oh, because yeah. because that that was the thing that really hit me when I was reading Genesis the other day, um, was because if you look at, and I, I need to just do an ancient cosmology episode at some point, as I love that stuff so much. But That's um, fascinating. oh, I love it. Um, but you see through in Genesis one, 
you see God speaking things into existence. You see, you know, you see the the terrestrial origins in Genesis two, um, but he's speaking things into his existence. He's just, you know, describing them as you say. He's classifying them, and that's his work of creation. It's ordering. And then the first thing after being called the image of God that Adam does is the exact same work, which is mm -hmm. classifying the animals. Mm -hmm. And so it's it's very fascinating to me, and it really opened up my eyes to see that the first thing that Adam did was be the image of God. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I think that's beautiful. But go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> no, and I think that's helpful because he what Adam does is he classifies her as bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, that yeah. sort of... Um, that interconnectedness that that people say intimacy it doesn't really denote intimacy um it denotes a sort of sameness but differentness there's you know yeah. that sort of and it's not derived as in um you know the, the famous i think it's rabbinic uh, she's not made from his head as to be over him nor from his feet to be under him but from his side so that she may she may stand beside him and that's what of course the helper language uh which is unhelpfully translated as helper means something like uh, literally and of course literally you don't want to translate anything literally but the idea denotes something a strength that corresponds or that is uh in front of him so kind of this right. you almost i mean to use a it's not a biblical example but you would say you have a yin and yang here almost just as right. an image you know that sort of inter uh interpersonal kind of reality um, he recognizes himself as different from her, but recognizes that this is not like the animals. This is not like the plants. This is not like the trees. This is not like this is a living bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And so I think what um, what I'll just say Moses to make it easy. What Moses is kind yeah. of trying to capture in these opening two chapters is um, man is not independent from woman, nor is woman independent from man, but both together constitute the image of God. Both. Yeah together function as viceroys as we would say i think priest is a good act good rendering of it because that's what an image does especially an embodied image yeah. um and so that priesthood that representation that um uh, co-authority over creation uh you know to have dominion over the birds of beasts and stuff like that which tells us of course uh, and you'll you and i'll love this and cody you'll love this too the co it's a cosmological statement that creation creation was not finished yeah. humanity had to to literally till the garden. God didn't give us a, a finished product on the beach. God gave us creation to subdue. And not uh, you, might, you wouldn't say oppress or, or exploit, but you'd say it became our responsibility to kind of cooperate on this creation together. Yeah, um, and it's really interesting. One of the things is the words used um, change because the, when it talks about tilling the earth, it, it goes from the uh, this is my understanding. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but I was, uh, you know, I heard Tim Mackey talking about this. I love Tim Mackey, by the way. I just, love the guy. he's God. too smart for all of us. Oh man. I would, I would love to speak to him, but, um, kind of the way he was talking about it. And one of the things I was listening to was how the, <clears throat> the word, and I talked to Cody about this before, I think with the, I don't know which discussion, probably Sabbath or something, um, in some way, but, um, the word shifted in Hebrew from a word that was essentially like a good word <laughs> to a word that had a, de a denotation of slavery to it. So they enslaved the ground rather than you mean, in, uh, uh, you mean with after it. the fall or yeah, uh, after in, the fall. Okay. Yeah. That makes yeah. sense. Uh, there was a shift the, between the two. The, the, word, the word in, um, in Genesis one that's used, um, of course, any, any word can be nuanced based on context and intent and stuff like that. But that right. word, often denotes God's authority or God's reign, which of course here makes sense. God has delegated his His sovereignty, you might say, to humanity to fulfill God's task, our vote, God's vocation, God's calling for us. 
but yeah, post-creation, yeah, you're right. The verbs do shift. The language does shift. Um, it becomes a, it, it, it goes from a new hope to uh, the Empire Strikes Back very, very quickly. Yeah. Oh, man. But I, 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 I've just enjoyed kind of looking at this because, you know, one of the arguments that I've made, um, not to do with complementarianism or egalitarianism, but in the, the way of raising children and our culture and especially, you know, millennials and younger is there, there, there was a real shift in marriage and father and mother. I would say Gen, Gen X was kind of the, in that place where it kind of started, but it really hit millennials hard. It really is hitting Gen Z hard. And my problem with that and what I've said is I think that what you're, what's happening here is you are made to have a mother and a father, which are two sides of the image of God. And if you don't have all of that, you lack identity in some way. And mm -hmm. so that, I think, leads to the world that we have right now where everyone is searching for an identity and they'll latch on to the dumbest stuff sometimes. <laughs> but I, I do think there's a profound identity, um, conf not conflict, uh, crisis in our, especially in America. And I think that that plays a large role in it. So I'm glad you said that. <laughs> yeah. No, and, and I think that's right. I, 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 I'm annoyed by Jordan Peterson. And then Jordan Peterson will say something that I'm like, oh, I needed to hear that, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. So I, I would, I'm, I'm, I'm neutral <laughs> on the Jordan Peterson thing. But, I'm kind of anti, if I'm being honest, and yeah. people don't like that. I because I, I've I seen <laughs> he God something about him just gets under well, my skin. I feel like he's gotten worse as he's been captured by his audience. Um, <laughs> yeah, but um, so so it, it seems like we're, we're kind of rooting this and starting in Genesis because we have these Adam and Eve are both made in the, in the image of God. They're both given this vocation together to rule to be fruitful. They're both the image of God, which suggests. Um, but there really isn't a difference in hierarchy, right? Um, or at least, at least that I see established in the actual text of Genesis one and two. Um, yeah, right. Most of my friends who are complementarian, uh, who, who like studied, studied, has not just grew up in it uh, and all that sort of stuff, but have taken the time, will basically concede that yeah, Genesis one and two doesn't teach this. We get this. Uh, we we read this like we think Paul is reading this. Well, and that's not them. And that's not me saying that. That's them telling me that that they sure. think Paul's reading of one Timothy kind of helps them make sense of Genesis and all that sort of stuff. And that's not yeah, to yeah. say it's wrong, but it is to say that's what I'm saying, generally speaking, in the people I have conversations with. The, yeah, I could see that. That makes sense. So um, th th there, there is a verse that kind of gets disputed though in Genesis, and uh, I think Genesis three sixteen, mm -hmm. and it's part of the sort of the curse where the husband is is, is supposed to is now going to rule over the wife adam is going to rule over eve and right. it's part of the, i think the debate then is is this god's intent or is this a dysfunction that's wrought by the curse is god saying this is how it's going to be and this is how it should be or i'm sorry but this is the way things are going to start going now and that's not my fault um <laughs> and, and so I, I, that seems to be kind of one of those those verses that gets debated um but nevertheless i mean i, I don't want to entirely make your case for you but but is there you know, the law, there's lots of verses uh, passages about women in these really interesting leadership roles uh mm -hmm. in the new and old testaments deborah is the prophet and the judge uh yep. judges four holda is a prophet in second kings 22. uh you have priscilla and aquila in the book of acts who are this husband and wife team who mm -hmm. seem to teach um and, and in fact priscilla seems to have the place of prominence mm -hmm. um phoebe's a deacon in romans 16. Uh, junia is an apostle in romans 16 as well 
Um, although that word probably doesn't mean like the 12 apostles, but something like a church planter, but it's still a, a, a significant role uh, of authority, so to speak, within the church. Um, and so we have all that, uh, but then um, we sort of get into some of these verses that get a little bit more complicated. So like, you know, First Corinthians 11, on the one hand, it speaks of women prophesying, uh, which seems to go against what we read in First Corinthians, or at least a, a simple reading of First Corinthians 14 about women keeping silent in churches. But within Romans 11, where it talks about women prophesying, we've got God is the head of Christ, Christ is the head of man, man is the head of woman, suggesting a hierarchy. And I know that that word, uh, kephale, I think, uh, become, is, is, is uh, you know, kephales, uh, becomes um, um, debated as far as whether that means source or uh, head, but um, arguably there's some kind of authority, maybe. Um, and then you get to 1 Corinthians 14, where Paul's talking about women keeping silence in church. Um, and, you know, then of course, as you mentioned, first Timothy, uh, talks about women should quietly receive instruction with, uh, submissiveness. Paul says he doesn't allow women to teach or exercise authority over man, but to remain quiet. And the reason he gives is that it was Adam who was first created and then Eve, and it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a wrongdoer. And so the, the implication that complementarians read out of that is, well, Paul is appealing to creation, like you said, right? They, they go, well, this is rooted, you know, this, this difference between men and women that allows men to have this specific position of authority within the church, um, like a kind of a, uh, like a teaching position, an elder, uh, something like that, um, is because um, of creation. There's something going on here. Uh, well, not exactly creation, but the fall. <laughs> um, yeah. And so um, I, I guess maybe the, a good place to go, um, and, this, and Cam, if you have a different idea, you, you can jump in, but it would seem <laughs> to me a good place to go is I think we can agree on a lot of these passages that suggest equality and, you know, women having these, these important roles, um, even like teaching roles, honestly, and leadership roles. Um, we still have a couple passages that seem to suggest otherwise. Yeah. And so I guess maybe the, the good question asked would be, what do you do with those passages that seem to complicate uh, I, your position? I do definitely, <clears throat> excuse me. I do definitely want to go over these passages. Mm -hmm. um, but first I, I, if, if you could succinctly uh, give your reasoning and your understanding, I mean, we talked about Genesis a little bit. Is there mm -hmm. anything like, what do you see and what is your, your argument just in its pure form? And then we can go over these specific passages. So since a succinct reading of the three disputed passages, like the one. No, 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 not, no, well, no, we'll do that. I will do that in a minute. I want to hear your case and where, how you would describe your case just in general, and then we can drill into the problems, if that makes sense. No, it makes sense. Uh, most of the, um, and by the way, interrupt me if something doesn't make sense or you want more clarification, by all means, I'm, okay. you know, I'm all good for that. Um, so let's say what I've argued in Genesis 1 and 2 and what Walton and others have argued, Richard Hess and, and others have argued that Genesis 1 and 2 holds. And then Genesis 3, you have, you know, of course, in the previous verse in verse 15, you know, I will put enmity between you and the woman and all this sort of stuff. So there's this kind of um, conflict that has arisen. And one of the difficult aspects about Genesis 3 is this, is this, does this represent God's kind of eternal will? Or is it, you might say, contingent until Christ comes, right? And so uh, egalitarians, generally speaking, if they're consistent, will say Genesis 3 represents um, basically, I, use, I already used this image, but I don't, so I'll just roll with it. Um, the empire strikes back. And until Christ comes, you're living under the shadow of basically a fallen world. 
And of course, if God didn't create a fallen world, he created a good world. And so the whole purpose of creation was to show us what God desires. And of course, Revelation speaks of all of us kind of going back to the tree, dipping our robes and kind of having new creation, you know, and after all things have been, all evil has been annihilated and destroyed from creation. There's nothing but what creation was in, for always intended to be. And that's kind of the, you can hear my atonement theology kind of working through the, you know, Christ recapitulates and, re, and reduplifies all of, all of the sin, evil and death and kind of makes things new. Yeah. Um, and the issue um, becomes, uh, does Christ undo this Genesis 3 language in his incarnation? And we, and I don't think actually the Old Testament is as sexist as people like to say. Um, I think there's a lot of stuff it's in there a that huge jump in women's rights. In fact, oh, compared to the yes. world around it, yeah, contextually, yes. And so you can always see kind of the Old Testament um, is God. I, you know, this is just the story of Jacob or the story of Israel. God wrestling with Israel. God has yeah. what God desires. And God desired that they would go through the land, that they wouldn't be enslaved, but yet they fall into slavery. They go into exile and so on and so forth. So I don't think uh, God ever desired, we might say, um, a hierarchy based on male and female or a higher or, or slavery or any sort of thing like that. Those are products of a fallen world um, that come into being when both Adam and Eve sinned or she he was deceived or rather uh, she was deceived and fell into transgression. Adam sinned willingly because he was there with her and he ate it. And, we're not given a lot of psychological reason or motivation why Adam did it. Rabbis and early theologians love to speculate, but Adam just did it. Or it's like, ooh, that does, that almost makes it worse, if I'm honest. But point being, um, I read Genesis 3 to maybe Matthew 1 as basically God's working. And I don't use the word attempting or working to suggest God's not sovereign or anything. I'm not an open theist or anything like that. But God wrestling with creation to get creation back on track. And then in the incarnation, God does get creation back on track, or at least in what God desired to get going. Um, I do see you do have uh, a general pattern of male leadership or male um, male rule in the Old Testament. But you see, as, as Cody pointed out, Riley, you do see exceptions to that. Um, even in a patriarchal society, there's no evidence that Deborah was weird or Miriam was weird or Holda was yeah. weird. It was, you know, God raised up whom God will raise up. And if, you know, that's kind of Gamaliel's joke in Acts 4 and 5 and 6 is um, good luck if you're standing in front of God and God decides to move, you know, to put it crudely. And so I'm willing to concede that the Old Testament has patriarchal overtones, but I don't think it represents God's ideal, even if God, uh, the face of God shines through that consistently and breaks the patterns of the world. And that's, of course, a very big statement, you know, um, just to kind of, you know, it's a big book. You know, the the Old Testament's quite big. and then you get to the New Testament, you have, of course, the issue of, uh, for example, women being kept out of uh, certain places in the tabernacle, right? That was just kind of common. That was very common in, in ancient Near Eastern literature as well. And yet in the death of Christ, you have Paul arguing that Jesus Christ is literally the mercy seat in Romans 3.25. And, so, and I take Hilasteria on there to be the actual Christ represents the mercy seat, the place where the blood of the Ark of the, the top of the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies that can be accessed through faith. And there's no kind of, you might say, barrier to that. To go back to the idea of sacred space, Jesus now represents God enfleshed as the place in history where mercy is found. And anyone can access this faith through his faith in his blood. And so women are not kept outside of that thing, nor are slaves, nor are Gentiles. And of course, Romans is big on how do Gentiles and is how do Jews and Gentiles interact. Um, And so kind of taking atonement theology, you have a I don't like the word inclusive because I think it's loaded, but you have a expansive view of atonement that does not put women and men on separate platitudes or different grounds. As N.T. Wright has said, the ground is even at the foot of the cross. The ground is even at the mercy seat. And all people have access to this God. And I'm an Arminian, so sorry if you, you aren't. 
but as an Armenian, <laughs> I believe God loves everyone, desires yeah. everyone to be saved. And but as a term, I'm I'm comfortable with that. It's probably a better way of saying okay. it. But you have an expanse view of atonement there, where anyone can access that when women previously couldn't. And you have, of course, you know, ritual impurities that Jesus kind of played with as well. Um, never overturning Old Testament law, but fulfilling it, what fulfilling what it was always intended to be. You know, divorce. You know, Mark ten and Matthew nineteen. Um, you have heard it said, but I say to you, hearkening back to you, I'm the one who wrote the damn thing. So who are you to shake your finger at me, Pharisees? You know, I actually wrote the book, <laughs> you know. Um, and so you see kind of God always no, gets, pulling us back to what God intended. You know, may, you know, may, have you not heard from the beginning? He made them male and female. And Paul, of course, picks up that up on that in Galatians uh, 3, you know, the famous fa- passage, you know, in Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. Um, but I think what's more radical there is his, Paul's idea of sonship. Uh, you'll see translations translated as something like children of God. You are all children of yeah. God through faith. And I hate that translation. I absolutely hate it because it whitewashes what Paul's arguing. He's arguing that anyone, including the women and slaves and children who hear this, are sons of God. They have the status, the image, we might say, of Jesus Christ, of God. All yeah. are lifted up in this new exalted status in the church. Paul, of course, can't go to the Roman Empire and go, uh, we, declare, we, we declare sovereignty, you know, like Michael, Michael Scott declaring bankruptcy. We declare sovereignty yeah. over um, all of this. No slaves ever. Do a way to get killed in the Roman Empire. Yeah. And so I think what you see in all of these texts, uh, theology of baptism, where all are baptized, when you did have some sort of issue with women and purity with that, all being yeah. baptized. Um, the same spirit is given to everyone for the specific distribution of gifts, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12 and other texts. And so I think kind of taking just, even not just appealing to specific texts, but kind of Paul's whole theology or kind of his certain kind of axiomatic way of thinking is remarkably uh, expansive to include women uh, mm-hmm. as co-participants. And of course you have female leaders and well, let's take for gospel that Paul does, you know, um, Phoebe, Junia, Priscilla and Aquila, Yodi um, and Syntyche in Philippians, uh, Afia in, in fact, let's take it that you have, or Nympha, you have all these women like actually acting and you know, you don't have, and a lot of them actually, you don't have the men named with them. Phoebe doesn't have a man alongside, which indicates that she's probably either single or her husband wasn't a Christian, or perhaps um, she was just the more prominent person in the relationship, which happens. And it's not common, but it can happen. Yeah. Um, and so taking those, you know, women leaders as also just, we'll just, and that's what we want to dispute them, but let's just say they are what they are and move to the three passages. So those three passages kind of represent, well, I think two of them represent, um, are, are truly the only difficult aspects, I think, of my my reading. And they're the two big ones. 1 Corinthians 11, um, I don't think is, for the simple reason that I don't think head there, and 1 Corinthians 11, 3, you know, God is the head of Christ and so on and so forth. Um, I don't think head there means authority or person in authority or sovereignty. Um, and this, not to get, too, I mean, we can get nerdy if we want. Um, the word there most often, I, I've I've done stupid amounts of reading on this, and, I have, and I'm still doing stupid amounts of reading on it. The word 95, 96, 97% of the time means this, this thing right here. Yeah. And every single use, almost every single use in the New Testament means this. The Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And so what you have there is a base, as I said earlier, when we talk about words having meanings, a base linguistic meaning. We all kind of share that this is a physiological idea, right? This has some sort yeah. of basis in physiology. But Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 is probably the first writer, maybe outside of Philo, who was a first century Jewish philosopher um, who wrote contemporaneously with, with, with Jesus and with Paul um, to use head in a very specifically metaphorical way. Like visage. Philo, I'm sorry? Is it, would this be like visage? Like 
it, you could tra- I think the best translation when it's used metaphorically, and of course, generally speaking, um, yeah. would be something like um, face or kind of, it has a de- denotation of a synecdoche, a rep- an aspectival representation. Like you would say the face of the head, you know, for example, mm-hmm. or the scalp, you know, uh, they didn't tear his head off, they tore his scalp off, which is right. part of the head, but it is not itself the head. Um, right. An example would be they cut off his head, meaning he died. Or Judith, you know, she cuts off the guy's head in the apocryphal book. She cuts off his head and he dies. And so I think the word here, I would render it something. And I, I would keep it as head. I would leave it untranslated just because I think it's just too easy to kind of get ideological with it. I yeah. don't know if it means source here. I think you can maybe infer that from later in the passage. But head here, I, I think, means something like representative part. Okay. So um, one aspect there would be... Um, and there also is an aspect of preeminence that is the most prominent part, you know, like an extension of the person. Um, so, for example, um, uh, let me pull it up real quick just to not butcher it because bad things happen when you butcher the word of God. <laughs> I think I read that in the book of Revelation somewhere. I don't want to I don't want to go into eternal judgment for that one. And so. So, yeah, what you have here and I think that I, I and this is going to get me in trouble, too, with my progressive friends. I think 1 Corinthians 11 is one of those passages that speaks a lot to kind of our modern sense of gender ideology and that sort of issue of identity more than a lot of people might like. You have um, any man who prays or prophesies or something on his head shames his head. And so you have this sort of uh, if a woman does this, it's shameful. So cut off her hair or kind of hold your hair up or put on a veil. It's, it's disputed what is hanging down from the head here. What Paul, I think, is getting at is 1 Corinthians 11, 3 doesn't tell you a whole lot on its own. It's like, okay, this can mean many sorts of things, but you have to keep reading. So 4 and 5, you have Paul kind of eschewing a sort of shameful behavior. These sorts of things are shameful, specifically that women are doing. And so for, for 6, and I'm reading from the NRSV, not because I think it's the best translation, but because it's the one that popped up. Uh, mm-hmm. For if a woman will not veil herself, or have her hair in a certain way, then she should cut off her hair. But if it is shameful for a woman to have her hair cut off or to be shaved, you should wear a veil. So what that tells us is something about the hair is causing a problem, Mm -hmm. right? Something about the hair. And of course, you have Michael Heiser and other people kind of following a certain reading that hair here kind of refers to a testicle. It's a very interesting idiosyncratic reading from Troy Martin. It's interesting, um, but it's one of those uh, readings that hasn't caught on, but is esoteric enough to be interesting. So I'm not going to... Uh, I'm just mentioning that because, you know, we're an esoteric, I'm on an esoteric show and it's fun to talk about esoteric things, (laughs) but, but let's go with hair. You have hair being this sort of thing, um, shaving it and all that sort of stuff, which tells us that God, and if you skip to the end, just to make it a little more clear. um, But if a woman has long hair, is it her glory for her hair is given to her for a covering? And if we do a little background research in the Dionysiac cult and other kind of cults and religions in the area, yeah. uh, sexual orgies, you let your hair down and you get you get the freaky going in these yeah. sort of cultic rituals. Loose hair on a woman signifies sexual availability. If you look at, and this is not exhaustive, but it's generally speaking the case, if your hair is up, you're proper. If your hair is down, you're a freaky person. And it's not so kind of like, with men. So kind of like before, I want to say it was Nancy Reagan, um, <clears throat> there were the idea that a woman would wear red lipstick would be would consider that would be the mark of a prostitute so and until it became so normalized that even nancy reagan was wearing red lipstick it was taboo and so i i I can make that connection there one thing that i was going to say um and i think this is what you're talking about because you said dynastic um in um ephesus was where they had the diana worship correct Artemis, yeah, the worship. Although that's overplayed yeah. quite a bit. There's not 
as much evidence as we'd like, just to be honest about right. Artemis worship and all this other stuff. But Artemis is there and Artemis is certainly in the background, but I want to be careful about not bringing too much of Artemis into the discussion, but, no, right. but go, with, go with what you're saying. I want to hear what you're going with. Right. And so, you know, that, that was the understanding. That's the understanding that I've read, um, which could be wrong, but the, you know, the idea that there were these um, female priestesses um, and that there was, and I don't know so much about in Ephesus with Diana. Uh, I have heard people claim that it was because there was the ritual sex and the ritual prostitution, but I would have thought for sure, because I know Corinth was essentially the center of Aphrodite worship, which that yep. was, you know, the, the prostitution, the temple prostitution was definitely a part of that cult. Um, so, and, I, and I, I'm, I'm using the word cult in the way of the actual use of the word, which is, mm -hmm. you know, a worship practices essentially. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, but no, yeah, that's so that's true. what I've heard, which is why, you know, when, when I've read, read these and when I talked to Jessica about this early on, I was like, I don't think this is, saying what people are saying that it's saying but that this is a correction because of where they are and so i think that's where you're getting to am i wrong <laughs> I, I think you're right um i think paul has in mind and we still haven't gotten to what 1 corinthians 11 3 means because you have to kind of keep going just because right. yeah let's do it a simple statement without any sort of kind of explanation okay what is this a proposition is this what is this paul right um and then you get to the language of uh, seven through nine about for a man ought to not have his head veiled since he's the image and reflection. Uh, they translate it uh, the uh, glory, but woman is the glory of man. And of course, people there are some people that automatically kind of infer a sort of hierarchy there. But if woman is the glory of man, what does that indicate in a context of sexual immorality or or sexual misconduct or the letting down of the hair that symbolizes red lipstick? Let's go with that. I think that's actually yeah. helpful. Well, it indicates that woman is man's glory, meaning woman is man's sexual counterpart. And I think creation is ba basically in the background of this because of representation of the Imago Dei in image language as well. Yeah. But there's also the issue in Corinth of um, same-sex same -sex agency and same-sex material in 1 Corinthians 6, um, the man having sex with his stepmother in 1 Corinthians 5. Apparently, they, yeah. everyone's just getting it on in Corinth. Um, so Paul has sort of... Uh, attempting to address what seems to be gender confusion, gender blurring, but also sexual, genuine sexual misconduct and malfeasance. And so Paul yeah. being a good Jew is looking at this woman, um, no, this is not how this goes. Um, woman is man's sexual counterpart. Woman is made to be female and is man's sexual counterpart. Man is made to be male and to be woman's sexual counterpart. He gets that very clearly in the next few verses where he says, um, Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent or separate of man, nor man independent or separate of woman. For just as woman come from man, so man comes through woman, but all things come from God. So kind of creating, you might say, that creational circle again. And the yeah. whole point is not to say that one has preeminence over the other, but the point is you are created in the image of God as male or as female. You are created to represent this sort of thing. And when you have sexual corruption, that leads into where women become more, it's not even, you know, Brand of Tarth exists, uh, Deborah exists. You know, these are not, yeah. you know, quote, feminine women, although they are very you know, feminine, they're women. But it is to say that to be a woman is to be created in the image of God and is to be a good creation. Woman yeah. is created as good. Male is created as good. And Paul has already affirmed uh, good sexual desire between male and female in 1 Corinthians 7. Neither has authority over the other, but yields it to the other. So the man doesn't have authority over his own body, but his wife does, and vice versa. You have that kind yeah. of parallelism. Mutual submission. Mutual submission. Um, but And so that kind of tells us that Paul here is addressing something. I've laid out an ideal for you in 1 Corinthians 7, neither having preeminence or authority over the other's body, but something you yield to the other. 
And here he's basically in the terms of prophecy, y'all have really, I can't say that word, y'all have really messed this up. And so <laughs> women, you are created to be women. This is good. Men, you are created to be men. This is good. And if all things come from God, then that may give us a hint of what 1 Corinthians 11.3 means, something like um, representative part, but also that creational component. Yeah. It's that sort of incarnate, you know, um, that sort of incarnational aspect of, you know, God, uh, Christ coming from God, you know, coming into the world and all that sort of stuff. We see that 1 Corinthians 8. And so I think what you have here is kind of a, a synecdoche kind of playing off one another. You have male and female kind of representing different aspects or parts of one another. And that is indicated um, in how God is related to us in the incarnation through Jesus Christ. And so that's a very 30,000 foot view and millions of more things could be said. Um, but the only mention of authority in the passage is 1 Corinthians eleven ten, which reads as for this reason, which of course, when you see the, for this reason, you look back a few verses and go, how does that work? It doesn't make a lot of sense, but for this reason, a woman ought to have authority over her head because of the angels. And yeah. it's one of those passages where you kind of go, okay. But my reading is um, a woman ought to have or exercise authority upon her own head, meaning have self-control. That's what I think that Greek verb or word means. It's either control or sovereignty over herself, meaning she has the capacity to act uh, with agency in, act, in keeping her hair up and being proper. She can actually do this. And she should do it because, and this is going to sound weird, but given Michael Heiser's work, I think this is eminently plausible, because angels aren't always good in the New Testament. Angels are trying to separate us from the love of God in Romans 8, 38 and 39. Yeah. And so you have some angels being bad. And so Paul seems to be intimating that angels, some angels who aren't good are watching and don't give foot. And this is going to sound weird. Don't give foot to the devil because yeah. there are angels and all that sort of stuff going on. So it's an apocalyptic context, even, I think, here. But I don't see any indication that there is an authority relationship here uh, between male and female i see paul basically trying to clear up the mess between men trying to be like women and women trying to be like men and all the right. sort of sexual goofiness kind of playing a part in it at the thirty thousand foot view i'm saying of course right well i mean and you know the seeing head as in uh, more or less a um representative role i mean this is this is interesting to bring into the context of i could be wrong but this is just where my brain is of you know first how should i say one corinthians or should I say first? All, all my professors and, and priests uh, are Australian or British. They say one. So yeah. say, say, I should be saying first. It's I, You say one Isaiah or two Isaiah. It's like, no. And of course I say Isaiah because I learned it all from them. Right. You're good. Um, but I, it, what's, I, would, what's, I would follow the great theologian Donald Trump and I would say one Corinthians. Oh, eminent <laughs> theologian Donald Trump. <laughs> but no, it's, it's interesting, this kind of representative view of, you know, God's the head of Christ, Christ the head of man, man the head of woman. Um, it's interesting the, the the relationship, which they talk about as well, um, or Paul talks about, is you know that Christ died for us, and so in that mutual submission, men must be willing to die for their wives, and so I feel like this has a real line through it. Like it's it's this is logical. This makes yeah. sense to me in some way. Well, and in that culture, men would have a sort of. I mean, they didn't have a sort of it. Well, or at least in Greco, there's not a whole lot. It's going to sound weird. There's not a whole lot of patriarchal stuff in, in Second Temple Judaism. I mean, there's some yeah. stuff where it's like, ooh, where'd that come from? But um, you really find it in Greco-Roman literature. Plutarch, Plint, like it's like, ooh, you 
how did you get a wife? Oh, that's right. You probably bought her. <laughs> I was like, well, this is well, not- yeah. Isn't it wasn't one of the Greek ideas that women were essentially disfigured men? Uh, that was. Yeah, that's straight out of Plato, which you find in Philo, which um, she may she may you find it in the Gospel of Thomas. Mary can only get to heaven if she becomes like a man. So it's one of those where. Yeah. But if you take the, the representational idea or you even accept maybe a modified source view, I don't like the word source. It's too, it doesn't like, what does that mean? But we all know yeah. what they mean by it or we mean by it, I guess. Um, but that word. It, it, uh, it, it's kind of a tough passage because whether you, you can plug in head and it kind of makes sense. You can plug in source and it kind of makes sense. You can plug in authority and it kind of makes sense. But it's such a strange passage that none of those entirely make sense of the passage. You know why it's tough? You wonder why it's tough? Paul doesn't use a head-body metaphor like he does in, say, Ephesians or other texts. Mm-hmm. Here yeah. you have head disconnected from the body. Now he talks about head and body in 1 Corinthians 12 about the church and how the head can't say to the feet, the feet can't say to the hand, the feet, blah, 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 blah. But he's building up that somatic – there we go. It's a somatic metaphor. Here you don't have that. Um, yeah. So you're kind of left going, like, okay um, – you may have an implied somatic metaphor, or it wouldn't be a metaphor, it'd be biology. Man yeah. come from woman, woman comes from man, that kind of well, yeah. babies, you know. Women well, make sons and sons make daughters and daughters make sons and so on and so on and so forth. Well, well you also have head as a metaphor, but hair is literal. <laughs> and so it's yeah. like, it, it, there, there's a lot going on in the passage mm-hmm. and it's it's tough to tease it all out. Well, especially the 30,000 foot view. Um, I. Yeah. I I, I've been translating Philo, and Philo uses Kephale head language 160 times, give or take a few. Uh, and maybe th- I can find two examples where it's like, yeah, that might mean like authority, but it's used to describe an authority figure, which usually would mean something more like preeminent or prominent versus authority, you know, because, yeah. you know, the metaphor doesn't work. You can use Kephale to describe a person in authority, but that doesn't mean Kephale means authority. It means it's used to describe in terms of placement a person in authority. 99 times out of 100, it means Philo just uses it to mean this thing. And it's one of those where it's like, okay. Hmm. Anyway, I didn't mean to cut you off. Okay, go for it. No, no, you didn't. I, I was uh, being rude. Um, but um, no, the, the, the concept of source is interesting to me because if you look at the Genesis 2 account, you have God who created the world and, and named it. I know it's not the best word or you know, classified it. And then you have man who classified woman. Um, but all of creation was done through Jesus who, so I mean the word. And so you've got this, the source thing kind of does have a sensical reality to it in the idea of the creation and how that is spoken. Um, and so I, I do see some connections in that, which is interesting. I just want to point it, that no, out. No, it's kind of a, in terms of order, maybe a better word. I'm not saying it's wrong, but maybe in terms, which I think in terms of sequence, the creational right. sequence. Yes, yeah, order, would, yeah. of course, implies all sorts of stuff, which I know you're not intending to communicate, but it's like there's a sequence to creation that kind of recapitulates back to, we would say, we'll say the Trinity in creation. You know, just right. go back to that. Um, but here, the only, I, I was shocked when I read, I'm like, one, I don't think this has anything to do with gender roles in a way that we like to talk about. I, I think it's addressing something that's far more uncomfortable, and that is gender ideology and gender identity, um, especially in a context that is you did have all this, you know, the stuff we have now. That that was very common back then. It was all over the place. And so it's, you know, this is nothing new. And so Paul is looking at this going, like, no, 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 no. And he's affirming, I think, what's radical. He's, he's affirming the agency of women in prophecy, which both are given. He doesn't tell them not to prophesy. He just goes, um, 
don't wear lipstick when you prophesy for lack of better euphemism. Yeah. Um, and men make sure, and of course, men having his hair down signified, you know, homosexual liaisons and stuff like that, uh, effeminacy, a lot okay. of references to men having their hair down um, did have sort of a kind of a feminacy kind of thing. You know, a lot of them were targeted with slurs and stuff like that. And that's of course all over ancient literature. And so if the man's having his hair down, that's signifying homosexual kind of availability. And the woman has her hair down indicating sexual availability. Paul's basically like, don't turn, turn the prophecy session into a brothel. Right. Don't just do the Nicolaitan the, thing. Exactly. You know, this isn't Jeffrey Epstein's playhouse, y'all. Like this is, this is the, this is the place of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, where he's worshiped and glorified, not where y'all get your rocks off. And so I think that's kind of where, how I read the passage. It, it, it tells us women and men prophesied together means that women did so with decorum and hopefully and men, of course, as well. Um, yeah. I just don't see it as directly addressing our, um, our topic, not that it's not probably the most difficult passage in the New Testament, as Cody said, like as many papers as have been written about 1 Corinthians 11 are interpretations of 1 Corinthians 11. Yeah, it's, it's I, I don't know if I entirely um, agree with your reading, but I have to say that it's, I'm, I'm, I'm puzzled enough that I, it's hard for me to <laughs> go too hard against what you're saying. Um, um, but yeah, it, it is it is worth noting that you know First Corinthians fourteen has a more uh, you know strident statement um, yep, yep. about this than First Corinthians eleven does. First Corinthians eleven is a bit like um, um, you know you can get a lot you can read something into it you can kind of get this from it, but you wouldn't want to build a whole theology on First Corinthians eleven. You'd, you'd want a little bit more, I think. Yeah. Um, and like, so the question is, does First First Corinthians fourteen get us that uh, specifically? 34 through 35, let your women keep silence in church. Yeah, let, let me let me throw in my presupposition here, or at least my mildly studied presupposition yeah. for 1 Corinthians 14 uh, about women being silent in churches, which I'll, I'll just read the verse. Let your women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted unto, unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. What, what, what translation did you put this in, Cody? Daggummit, um, saith. Uh, and if they learn anything, let them <clears throat> ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame to for women to speak in the church. So here are the things that I've heard. Obviously, when I was a kid, it was it, it was weird because, like you said, I grew up in kind of the charismatic movement, and so there were a lot of women speaking, but also they could never they would never they would never call them pastor because they felt that that was wrong based on these things, and so it was kind of this weird amalgamation. Um, but my understanding when I read into it was one, the Diana, wor yeah, no, Aphrodite worship in Corinth. And two, I've also heard claims that it was because women, unlike men, were not taught all of the necessary things that they would need to be taught before they started teaching, essentially. And so that is kind of where my brain has landed for a minute, is kind of between these two concepts. Is that incorrect no it, those are legitimate readings of the passage um one is of course the issue of of the law there's no old and i went and looked there's no old testament law that signifies women have to be silent like there's just yeah. there's just there's nothing there so that creates an enormous amount of problems because either paul is appealing to a common law which we go well why would we care about what the roman law is right we don't live under the roman law that's not to say paul's wrong but it's like okay paul certainly got something in mind here that we don't know um, or Paul's appealing to, or perhaps a rabbinic law or, or rabbinic saying, which of course yeah. is like, well, hmm, no, not, that's not going to fly. Mm -hmm. Um, 
or he's got in mind some sort of general transcultural principle, but it's like, but that's, he doesn't get that from his, his scriptures, right? He doesn't get that from, yeah. from the law, the book of Moses or the books of Moses. And so that leads you to kind of go, okay, there's essentially two options that I've seen here that I think work. One is incredibly complex and one is less complex. I'll go less complex first. Okay. Um, one is you have, or three technically, and both two of them are less complex. One is more complex. One is the refutation device that verse 16, or rather verses 14 through, or, sorry, verses 34 and 35 represent a Corinthian slogan that Paul quotes. And then verse 36 is a refutation of it. Or did the word of God originate with you? Are, or are you the only ones it has reached? Now, Paul has been quoting the Corinthians throughout 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 7, 1 has a direct quotation, or at least a, a probably a paraphrase of what they said, what he heard from Chloe's people, um, which makes sense. The problem is that it is a sort of reading that is just grammatically, at just at a purely Greek level, is more difficult to sustain. It doesn't mean it's implausible, but it does mean it's like, mm, that's a little... It, it, it's not that I don't I don't like calling readings desperations. I think it's childish to do so. But it's someone that's like, okay, that it could be, but it's probably not the best. It's not the most natural way to read it. Well, um, yeah, go ahead, Kelly. I was going to say, in addition to the grammar, usually when Paul is presenting an argument that he refutes, he goes on to refute it, <laughs> and it, it's really he doesn't really seem to be doing that here. It, oh, kind of maybe it. it it's it, all it, being non-pastoral by basically, like, are you stupid? And doesn't even bother refuting it. So I've heard that argument made too, which is like, mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, it seems, it seems a little weak. Yeah. Uh, the other one is, and I think this has some legs is like, Paul is telling some uneducated women who are mouthing off in church to be quiet and learn. The church isn't a, isn't a seminary class. Right. And I'm like, given what we know of women's education, given what we know of, uh, and this, of course, Paul is having to deal with this too. The new freedom for women in Christ that we see all over his letters, and then especially we see it in the early Christian movement that women flock to this movement. I mean, it's so bad that early Christian heretics called this a religion of men, women, and children, or I'm sorry, women, children, and slaves, because they're the only ones who became Christians, which tells us about how much they were prioritized and valued. Um, and so it could be that that sort of, you know, this newfound freedom, I'm not under um, the sovereignty of the Roman Empire when I come into this home, I am uh, valued. Uh, I have gifts. I can prophesy. I, I'm not under anyone's authority, but my savior and my Lord who has pulled me out of darkness and all these sorts of things. It's like, I can see that as a, as a legitimate, like, yeah, that makes sense to me that you wouldn't know how to act in God's house because you've never been in God's house. And so this is Paul's way of being like, take those questions home and talk to your husbands about it. Your husbands will educate you. I think that's a very legitimate reading of the passage. So those are the two less complicated. Any uh, mm-hmm. pushback or insight or, or thoughts on that? I mean, that's okay. the second one's basically what I said. So, well, yeah, <laughs> go ahead. Cody. I was going to say I, I would like to just maybe add briefly. I mean, we we I think you and I both cited various passages in Paul, and you mentioned it just now. I mean, Paul is talking a lot about this freedom that women have in Christ, and mm-hmm. it's it's kind of amazing to me that Paul is known for being such a sexist because really you've got a couple, we'll say four verses or four four short passages that suggests. Um, some kind of a hierarchy, or at least it could be read that way. But for the, the vast majority of what Paul is doing is incredibly forward thinking when it comes to the role of women and, and what women are doing in the churches. And so I do want to say it's not it's not like, well, Paul doesn't have anything to say about women except for in these few verses where he seems very negative, which is kind of the perception that a lot of people seem to have when they're pushing against Paul. It's These passages are so difficult because there's almost always a counterpoint passage that seems to kind of be saying the opposite. Right, yeah. <laughs> 
and, and that, that is what I think makes this just so complicated. Like, like first Corinthians 11 on the one hand, like we said, well, maybe it has this passage that talks about a hierarchy, but here's this other place where it talks about women prophesying. And then three chapters mm -hmm. later, he's saying women need to keep silent. How can they keep silent and prophecy in the church? Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, but yeah, so, um, uh, well, and actually the, the, uh, the common law, um, just to, to kind of give some maybe support to that, that, that Paul's referring to uh, Roman law there and not the Torah. Um, as much as I want uh, Paul to be an anti-state anarchist, uh, like a full-fledged anti-state anarchist, he and Jesus both seem to have this major concern for um, the witness of Christians. Yeah. And, and that, you know, it's, it's sort of like we're in this culture. This is kind of how they do things. Our view Don't is actually killed. the opposite of that. But we still have to take into consideration that you know we can we can really freak people out and hurt our case if we if we go you know full stop equality um, in this very kind of overt way and so I, that does seem like it could be plausible to me as as, a, as an option. Well, it it helps give some context to some of these passages because if you start doing this, um, if you start freeing your slaves, what income do you have in the first century? Mm -hmm. Like you you're consigning your family, your babies to death. <laughs> so it's one of those the, the Roman economy was built on the backs of slaves. And that's why, you know, Paul just can't go, well, set your slaves free. It's like, well, what are the slaves going to go do? And how are you going to do all this? And you're all going to die because it's you freed everyone, and then freedom leads to death. And so a lot of the difficult passages on women and slaves in the New Testament, are, I think, are more contingent on tr Paul trying to survive. Like, here's how you survive in a world that is not geared towards you at all. It's not geared toward the yeah. ethics of King Jesus. Um, and not only is, do I wish Paul were, I think Paul is far more anti-imperial than we give him credit for, although mm -hmm. he does seem to tip his hat a few times where I'm like, oh, he had to say that, Paul. Um, but I think Paul is caring not only about the witness, but their survival. And I think I couldn't hear you, Cam. I thought you said he doesn't want them to get killed because last time the Jews <laughs> rebelled, uh, we saw what happened with the Maccabean revolt and all these other revolts, the revolts of Korah, they were just annihilated. And yeah. so it's one of those where it's like, there's 25 people of you in an empire of mil like a million people. Yeah, go, go. Go throw your middle finger at, finger at Caesar and see how that goes for you. And well, so it's one they, of those – go ahead. No, I was just say they did kind of throw their middle finger up at Caesar in the way with the Jesus is Lord statement. Uh, and that, so that's that's definitely a, a part of it. But what, what when I said, you know, don't get killed, it's because that's my understanding and reading of the passage that everyone brings up. Give to Caesar what is Caesar. Give to yeah. God what is God's. Yeah. I think that what Jesus was doing was it was more or less a sort of concession – but insofar as saying, pay your taxes, this is not the fight we're going to have. You have, we have a bigger mission going on here. Let's not get killed over something temporal. So that's kind of where, where my brain is on that passage, which I think okay. you can kind of see here. I don't know. No, I, I, I get it. <laughs> um, so I think we have to keep all that in mind when Paul talks about um, women and slaves and all this sort of stuff, because where's the slave going to go if you give him his freedom? And so the whole treat your slave right is itself a revolutionary concept that I think it's overlooked in a society that's like, oh, boy, I wish Paul were a, a, a latte sipping, you know, kind of, you know, thumb their nose, Ivy League seminary professor. You know, it's like, no, he's a first century pastor who's having to deal in a place that wants to kill him. So yeah. pre preaching a revolutionary message in a way that hopefully doesn't get him killed and probably got him killed. Um, yeah. And so we have to keep that in mind, too. It's not just as easy as us living in our modern churches going, well, can women do this? Can women do that? It's like you're you're not living under Caesar's realm anymore. Well, you know what I mean? You're not living under the threat of Roman death every day. We have air conditioning here. We have Amazon Prime. We're not as we actually get to vote sometimes. You know, they didn't. And so 
Uh, but to get back to the, the passage before I, I lose completely lose my train of thought, the more technical <laughs> question is, um, are these passages um, original to 1 Corinthians 14? Um, there, there was a, a huge debate in the past about um, them being an interpolation or a gloss. That is something that was uh, inserted later into the, it'd be very early on, into the manuscripts of 1 Corinthians 14. Um, you see it. Uh, and you see do and you do see displacement in issues here so there's two maybe three aspects to kind of tease out real quick i, I do think these are probably non-pauline that is they are inserted later um but it's not something i i mean i put it in print looking back i'm like i shouldn't have put that in print i should have been more more measured with how i said that so you learn something um one is you have an, a large amount of textual variance in these two verses like words being swapped words being misspelled yeah. which tells us okay there's doesn't give you the whole story, but it gives you, okay, there's a lot more in two verses. There's a lot more textual variance than the surrounding verses that you would normally have. So that's just a piece. Another one is in the Western text tradition, about 500, you know, um, like fifth century, these verses are transposed and moved wholesale. So they're moved as a unit down below verse 40. So they're actually moved as a unit. When you see movement, it's one thing to move a word around or flip a, a clause around or something. It's another thing to have blocks of text moving. Like yeah. we see that with the, uh, the the woman caught in adultery in John's gospel, right? Just moves all over the place. It, it ended up in John or Luke's gospel in a certain manuscript, like, you know, in the 17th century or something like that. It's like someone thought it was funny just to take, just put that in Luke's gospel. Um, and so those two things already, uh, and they also seem intrusive to the context, which is usually a mark of something going on. Does And again, this... These aren't all, it's a cumulative case. It's not each individual argument. Um, But there's been an article that came out in New Testament studies by uh, Philip Payne. And it's a really interesting article where he talks about one of our oldest Greek Bibles. And he talks about, it's like fourth century, I think, which is very early. And he found these certain markers throughout both the Septuagint and the New Testament that all correspond to well-known interpolations, you know, insertions into the text, you know, based on other criterion and stuff like that. And they occur in uh, one couple of places in the Septuagint where we're like, oh yeah, we can tell by origins work and textual criticism, that is an interpolation, that is this, you know, we can, we know that for sure. And same thing in the gospels. Um, and it also gets put in 1 Corinthians 14 and it's a break. It's a very distinct like paragraph way mark, you know, which tells us that the scribe of Vaticanus, or one of the scribes of that early Greek Bible, and it's early evidence, tells us that he knew something was off with this. Yeah. And so, and that's a, a major find because his article, it, it's not without its critics. Everyone's got to critic, criticize, and there are aspects to the article I would criticize. But the point that he made was really strongly supported by other text critics like Larry Hurtado um, and others who were just like, you know, all that sort of stuff. And so um, I think it is quite likely that these verses were added later into Paul's manuscript or the, the manuscript that went to Corinth and um, don't fit what Paul said. Because, and that's sort of a very, I'm trying to, it's one of those things I've got rows and rows of books and monographs running through my head right now. I'm trying to keep it so that y'all don't fall asleep. Um, but th- that's kind of the main argument. Um, there's also issue of certain church fathers quote throughout the passage, you know, 1 Corinthians 14 all throughout and talking about some, uh, being quiet and listening to everyone and then somehow skip those two verses. So it's one of those where it's like, wait a sec, that would be, it's, a, it's it's not an argument from silence, it's an inference. So it's like, it'd be odd for a church father talking about being quiet, not to include something or comments about, say, the women being specifically quiet. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, 
And so the, those little pieces, and of course, you have other scribes, you know, later in later manuscripts, just removing it entirely, you know, mo- removing those two verses entirely, being like, nope, you know, kind of thing. And so I think the textual tradition for these two verses is, is unstable. As I'm not going to say with, you know, 100% certainty, of course, but it's enough for me to go, these don't, I mean, you can make, you can harmonize it with 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, most harmonization theories I've seen, I think, are just, eh, you know, kind of, I don't really buy them. But yeah. Um, if they are original, then I think Paul's basically going like, you have new freedom in Christ, but this isn't a seminary class. Be quiet and learn, which I yeah. think he also says in 1 Timothy 2. Um, if original, I think just be quiet and learn. Don't be silent forever is probably the best reading. If they are original, I just think most likely, although not exclusively, they are probably later additions to the manuscript tradition. Um, that's an opinion that's shared by, uh, I wouldn't say a majority of text critics, um, but a very strong like Gordon Fee and and other people yeah. have, have argued very strongly for that. Um, and so it's debated and it'll still be debated. I know there are a few more articles that came out recently disputing pain, but also a few that oddly affirmed some of his points, because if he's right, then you have uh, early attestation that uh, uh, the Gospels didn't have um, punctuation, which means Vatican, and if I'm remembering this correctly, of course, uh, got um, is copied from a manuscript that lacked punctuation, which means Vaticanus represents a very old text, a very old way of seeing the text, which may tell us a bit about 1 Corinthians 11 or 1 Corinthians 14. But it's one of those things where I'm waiting to see more. I want to see more pushback come out on that. Um, yeah. But that's kind of where I've landed. If I don't think they're original, but if they are, then they represent basically Paul just telling the women to be quiet. And I don't see how it represents an eternal subordination or silencing of women. Um, okay. I, I was, I was just going to say, if it, maybe partial pushback. I, I, I think you're right that there's some evidence of, of instability, um, primarily that the Western tradition does put them in a different place. My understanding, though, is that there's no manuscripts that admit those verses altogether. Is that right? That- That's not a precise enough statement. Um, okay. D.A. Carson says that quite a bit. It's it's one of those statements where it's it's not true, but it's not, it's not well stated because if you're looking at a manuscript and you know that manuscript uh, copied from a manuscript that didn't have those verses, well, then we don't have a manu- we do ha- we don't have a manuscript that omits them, but we know that manuscripts did omit them. If that makes sense, we know that there are some manuscripts that did omit them. Yes, we don't have those physical manuscripts because there we have the copy of them. So um, maybe a better way of saying it is, um, we have this book here, the Apocalyptic Paul. I'll cover this up. And there's all this stuff here. But uh, if we look at it and we go, huh, we scratch off the P and it turns out there was nothing underneath. We go, huh, that must be for, or we find a, a the up top here in very faded letters. So, okay, that may represent an older copy of the book. Then you go inside and you say, oh, it's a draft form or something like that. It, we don't have the draft form. We have no copy or reference of it, nothing in the emails. But we do know that this was based on previous draft forms. And so... It, it, te- it does. It's, it's a true statement in the sense that we don't currently have physical copies of them, but we know that physical copies existed because we can look at later manuscripts and say, ah, these manuscripts give evidence that they are copied from a, a, a text or a manuscript that didn't have them. And so okay. um, it's too much. to. It's not it's a true statement insofar as it goes, but it doesn't actually answer, I think, the more interesting question about the, the text that we don't have that we know existed because we can look at the results of those copies. So, for example, uh, manuscript thirty-three. It's a ninth. Ooh, you know, I'm not going to speak on that because I don't have the, the I don't have the information from me, and I don't want to look like an idiot. Yeah. But we do have late manuscripts in the ninth and tenth century that do omit those verses or at least transpose them very significantly, and we know they're getting it from an older text. We just don't have the older text. And so, D. A. Carson and others are 
right insofar as we don't have a physical copy of it. But it's one of those where it's like, that's not the knockdown argument you think it is because we're talking about a text that did exist that we just no longer have reference to. So it's like, we don't have Paul's original letter to Corinth, but we do have the copies of his letters to Corinth. And so that's that's just how textual uh, textual stuff works. And it's uh, it's more science than art, but it's a lot more art than science than I think a lot of people like. But yeah, that's kind of where I'm coming from. To, to, to be clear, are you saying we know that it's that there are manuscripts that don't have it because there are some manuscripts that put it somewhere else, and that's evidence that they're copying from a manuscript that didn't have it? Is that is that the argument? Uh, so let's take the Western text, right? So the Western text takes those verses, those two, and moves them down below verse 40. So it just moves them down. Um, they didn't get that from nowhere. Mm -hmm. And so the whole issue is, okay, where did the Western text, did the Western text go oh, create it out of wholesale? Just go, oh, no, we're just going to move these two. Or we're, because a good scribe, and we know this from, you know, Origen and others, you know, the scriptorums and all that, they were fastidious in copying things. They were very, they were loath to remove stuff. They mm -hmm. remove stuff, um, which is why we can have great confidence, ironically enough, in the transmission of the Bible. It's a very reliable because that's how these scribes worked. But if they're moving stuff around, they're not moving that because they don't have evidence to move it. And so we have to ask the question, and it's only a question because we don't have answers. Well, I think we have answers, but it's not like we have 100% certainty. Yeah. They're moving it because they think they have good evidence based on previous transmissional texts or materials to do so. Mm -hmm. okay. And so when D.A. Carson or others say, um, we have no manuscripts that omit this, it's like, well, that's true, but he should say physical manuscripts that omit this. Because we do know of manuscripts that move stuff or transpose stuff or or um, or at least make marginal you know interpolation notes as Payne has shown that these scribes are getting it from something they're getting it from a tradition or history or previous copies that we no longer have but but but, but they still have it so that suggests that what they're copying from does have it just in a different place uh, if you're going from the Western text possibly so either the Western text but we have to ask why did the Western text move it no yeah absolutely yeah it's it, and I think that that's suggestive even if it's not if it doesn't clench it, like the, yeah, the, yeah. The, 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 like the, 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 and I don't know if a lot of people follow textual criticism, but basically you have these sort of texts, families. So like you have, you know, the, this kind of tradition over here, the Western text here, whatever. And, and so they sort of families of texts kind of look similar. They make the same kind of, they have the same kind of differences um, or the, you know, whatever. Or trends, um, yeah. And so, um, yeah. So the, like the, the, the passage about the woman found in, the, in adultery, for example, um, which, which obviously is, you know, the best passage, not in the Bible is, um, is one that we not only moves, but it's also missing in some places. Um, whereas, uh, this, these two verses that we're talking about first Corinthians seem to be in the earliest text, but there's also later text traditions that put it in a different place, which suggests that there's something a little fishy going on. Um, but, but, but I think, I think you're right, you know, as far as like, well, let's say we, let's say we're, we're, we want to keep those passages. Obviously you can't go with the strongest reading of those passages because that would contradict what Paul said three chapters ago. Mm -hmm. Right. But, you know, if, if women are really having to keep silent, um, then Paul wouldn't be saying that women are prophesying in church. Yep. And so there has to be some kind of contextual uh, explanation for why Paul is now saying something that seems to contradict. And it seems that the safest thing is to go with the more open and free reading um, and that makes this this passage not as helpful for complementarians as they, or especially the extreme complementarians, as they might think it does, because you right. can't really harmonize that with what what Paul says elsewhere. Yeah, and and it, with the evidence of Vaticanus and them copying from an older text, it's just one of those things where, if you're looking, 
back and you can tell that you know lacking say punctuation in the earliest manuscripts we know that's a very common thing in the gospels if paul or rather the, the scribe of vaticanus um, is copying from something that emulates very old manuscripts that means he had very old manuscripts or he or she we don't know uh, there were women scribes ironically um, we know that this person would never change anything without good evidence and so the fact that the western text moves it indicates that Either they, it could be there. Like, oh, this just doesn't fit. But they're not like postmodern literary critics like we are. <laughs> they're yeah. they're very slow to change anything. You know, yeah. they're they're more yeah. likely to insert something than take something out. And the fact that they displace them so far means that either they had good evidence to do so, or the scribe sneezed and oh well, I got to rewrite it and did a poor job. Which actually sure. there is some evidence that some manuscripts mm -hmm. are like that. Um, well, you, you could like imagine a scenario where where they're saying they're reading a text that doesn't have it at all, and then they think, well, wait a second. I read a text somewhere that had this in it. And so maybe they stick it at the bottom or something. Right. So you, you, yeah. you can imagine some, some explanation, but it's, it's just without the physical evidence, it's a little hard to say exactly why there's a discrepancy there. Well, you, you, you can explain that there was, you can explain the why, yeah. um, you, you know, you can, I mean, it, you can just say, Oh, if it's a motive to silence women, it's like, well, okay, sure. But that's, that's a little too easy for my books. What mm -hmm. just, I think contextual factors, as you mentioned, um, and you did have, you know, very strong, um, literal or maybe wooden readings of scripture in the in the early church which were in contradistinction to say origin who was very not literal um and so you didn't maybe have that issue at play and but th that's it's one of those things where you can only speculate but you can uh, i think it's a reasonable explanation to say these are copied from earlier manuscripts that either displaced them omitted them or there was some suspicion about them even if we don't possess the physical copies that would give us what we'd like but we can look at that and go, okay, there's, for me as an egalitarian, when I was a complementarian, these were some, oh no, there's too much going on here to, I would never cite this as, as a text in support of my view. Um, yeah. It's, it's one of those where the textual tradition is too unstable and the strongest reading literally is, is turns Paul into just the worst type of writer. And I think Paul, at least as inspired as he is, was not a bad writer. So let me ask, um, the other verse, does this, does this kind of argument also apply to, uh, first Timothy two eleven through 15, or is that a completely different animal? Uh, I think it's a different animal, but you will have, uh, 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 I would say, I don't want to, uh, how do I say this nicely? More, um, there are some folks that go, Paul didn't write the pastoral. So who cares? Who cares what, what who cares what the author wrote in one Timothy? Um, I have doubts about the pastorals myself, but it's at a like 70, 30. I think Paul wrote them, or at least Paul had oversight over their composition. Maybe is a better way of saying it. Paul probably didn't write most of his stuff. Um, but I, I do, the, the approach would be, um, either to say Paul didn't write these, so they're not authoritative. Who cares what, whoever wrote the pastoral say they're second century, you know, who cares, you know, kind of things. Yeah. Um, or you go like me and go, no, they've been, Paul did write these and Paul's addressing something very specific and had a very, um, uh, situational context that has, I would argue universal application, but not in the eternal silence of all women everywhere. Okay. And so that's kind of how I, I look at the passage. I, I think Paul wrote them. I, I didn't think Paul wrote them for a while. And then I really delved into them. Like, no, I think these are, these sound very Paul. They sound like very much like Paul. So the only, the, uh, the curious issue is that 1 Corinthians 14, some people have argued, I don't think this is as sustainable, but 1 Corinthians 14 was inserted by someone who took 1 Timothy 2 to heart and put it into 1 Corinthians 14. Because there is some, there are the lexemes and the words there do match quite nicely. You know, silence, submission, all that sort of stuff. Uh, it's an interesting theory, um, it, but that depends on you taking the pastorals very late. You know, maybe second, early second century, which I don't because I think Paul died in the first century. 
Uh, and it also requires you to believe that 1 Corinthians 14 is an interpolation, and which I do accept generally, I would say most likely, but I also don't put them in the second century. So Gotcha. Oh, and just just for people who don't know what the word interpolation is, just in oh, case. Sorry. <laughs> um, so here's interpolation is actually also used in music. Um, so wait, my, my brain went blank. Um, so an interpolation would be a like not like a sample. So it's not a direct taking of something, but rather being inspired by that thing and then adding it into your own song. A later insertion into into the text yeah. specifically. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I think that we, we've hit about an hour and a half. So I do want to get to a few more questions and then sure. kind of round it out. Um, if that's good, if you feel like you've been able to yeah, say some really got, good stuff. I got a few but, minutes. All right, cool. Um, so my first question is I, I asked a couple of people who, uh, well, specifically one guy who is opposed to this completely. I said, do you have any questions? And so this was his question. Uh, he asked, when was the first female bishop ordained? I have no idea. I'm not a church historian. Yeah. That, that's me being pithy. I, I, my knowledge of, of, of this debate basically extends to the early second century. Um, right. In the New Testament, um, I, I'm also loath to use the word ordained because I don't think the church, early church, had a, that same structure as later church structures do. Okay. Um, ordination is, I'm, I'm comfortable using it now to describe modern church practice, and I don't think it's ad hoc or out of nowhere. It's, that's a very early tradition. I just don't think um, ordained is something the early church, or I should say the New Testament writers being Jews would have been like, oh yeah, that's, so um, in term, I would use terms of maybe uh, commissioned or sent or kind of I would try to use more New Testament language than ordained. Ordained in the New Testament, of course, is something God tends to do, and that's ordaining events or plans or structures or something like that. Okay. Uh, well, it, um, his... say, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was just say if I were to expand what I what I think he's where I think he's going with the question is um, that he's assuming that there's at least one sort of role within the church that women have never performed, at least until recent times, which suggests kind of a continuity. Um, not just with the, with the with the New Testament, but you could maybe argue even the apostles and the and the, the Old Testament priests. Um, I will say I was just reading um reading through a book called the African Christian Mothers and Fathers, and there's a chapter on um, um, African Christian mothers or, or, or women who are influential in the African Church, and they reference a book uh, by either Torgerson or Torhason <laughs> called When Women Were Priests, uh, and and they make an argument that there there is some evidence of women in Cappadocia and Bithynia functioning as presbyters or priests, but I don't actually know what the case that, that that's being made for that is. Um, so it's there, possible, probably based, oh, sorry, go ahead. Go, it's, it's possible that there may be some, but it is, it is uh, elusive. We'll just say. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. So you, you and, could make the case. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no. I was just going to let you know uh, when, when I was talking to him, he, uh, he clarified, yeah, that, uh, that the the first one was the late 20th century. And of course, since we're, this is a group chat with like every, like none of us are the same denomination. Um, it was, you know, fun. Uh, but he, he had said it really took that long before Christian re Christians realized it was an okay thing to do when all along it was the bi biblical model. And then uh, follow up, another guy came in and said, to, to be clear, I don't care if it's a bishop. I just want to know when the first woman was treated as having teaching authority over men. Maybe that's a way to ask the question with a, l a little less specific to certain denominations. Well, I mean, you have women teachers all over. You have, uh, well, I mean, Pris Priscilla and Aquila, 
I mean, yeah. took Apollos aside, her being more prominent, as Cody said, and taught him more accurately the ways of the Lord. So there's that. Um, there's also, um, I mean, and it's one of those things where uh, every one of you in, in Colossians 3.16, when you come together, has all sorts of things, but also has a teaching. So uh, given that Paul mentions uh, women uh, submit to your husbands two verses later, I don't think he has uh, women not in mind when they come together. Now, of course, I think Paul had specific reasons for telling wives to submit to us, but he does say a few verses before that, that uh, every one of you, when you come together and gather, has a teaching, very specifically a teaching. So I don't think that excludes women. Uh, okay. For the reason that women are literally mentioned two verses later, even though they are told to submit to their husbands, which I'm perfectly fine with, because I think Paul had a very specific reason for that. Um, there was something also, Cody, that you mentioned. Um, there's a, and this is stuff that is coming out now. Uh, thank God for excavation and archaeology, where you do have what seem to be very interesting um, cave paintings. Isn't the right word? Wall art. You know, the ancient wall art, where women are depicted in certain poses that do signify some, you know, the, you know, the, I, I don't know the finger thing. You see that Paul? Yeah. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> they have certain, th yeah, it's a certain gesture they have, you know, that priests or G Paul will have, you know, and yeah. women are doing that too. And there's one very famous one where the, the woman has her hand up like that and it's chiseled off. Hmm. So someone was not happy about that. And so I don't, it's one of those where not being an archeologist, I, I couldn't quite, I'd have to pivot to them. Yeah. Um, but the, I think Cody said, I, I would use the word, there are suggestions that there are, I, I think there's suggestive elements there. Um, is it as clear as I would like in the third or fourth or fifth century? No, but unfortunately I'm happy to admit my, my lack of knowledge on what happened in the third, fourth, and fifth century outside of a few things here and there. Um, gotcha. I think the New Testament does present women in uh, positions of authority, specifically with certain titles, and working alongside Paul. Um, without any sort of, by the way, they did this, whereas Paul did this. It was, there seems to be a shared ministry that they all kind of engaged in without reference to hierarchical ordering. And the few passages that, or the one passage that does seem to suggest it, we didn't talk about, but people can email me and talk about that, what the one Timothy 2 passage um, uh, and all that sort of stuff. But that, that'd be my very short answer. Um, okay. Well, very short, very long answer. Attempt <laughs> of an answer. Well, um, so as you know, anytime people who are interested in theology or theologians get together, there's this fight for pre precision. And so I, I just want to give these uh, other points just to you to see if um, they matter to you. Um, he he said, uh, may, I don't care if it's a bishop or I care, but you probably won't. Um, he says, um, I say pre uh, presbyter, the Greek word to get around disagreements about what amounts to what that amounts to in English terms. So he's asking, was there, can you point to a presbyter at any point in time in history? But you said you're not a historian. So you know. I should say I'm not a church historian. Right. Um, so it's, it's unfortunately my, my knowledge is limited to the first and a little bit of the second century. Um, I know there, I could recommend a few people to you, but unfortunately I don't have their other uh, material in front of me. Gotcha. All right. And the final thing from this chat was, um, he said, my worry is that if you ask about women with authority, he'll be vague and appeal to examples in the New Testament that may or may not involve authority, but where that's not stated at all. Uh, example, Priscilla and Aquila. Uh, there's an important distinction between I found that authoritative and this person is ordained in the church. Again, I'm going to have to go back to the I don't think that assumes a denominational kind of like you and I've talked about earlier, right. words having very specific meanings to very specific denominations. Um, right. I should, I should, of course, joke, as an ordained Baptist, I'm, I, I think Baptists shouldn't be ordained. It seems very 
anti-ecclesiology given what we believe but <laughs> I, um but i i think I, I think there's something to this so when you say titles applied to men um and this might reveal some of our bias and i had this bias so i'm speaking with you know flicking myself with this oh we don't bat an eye if paul calls himself an apostle but for some reason when junior is mentioned as an apostle we go oh well we have to find something here and i did that for for months with junior junior pissed me off as a complimentarian but she is called an apostle and there are a few people that dispute that based on grammar but i think i, I think it's a really bad argument well, and doesn't we wanna... the word apostle essentially just mean uh the, like those sent out if like, it, if you take it woodenly yes um a pi yeah. apostle has can have a sent one but it can also have a, a, a com in combination with being sent it has a titular kind of i mean i don't think a lot of these titles carry the same formal authority that we have in the church today we yeah. tend to we, we tend to formalize everything i don't think it was as simple as that in the new testament but when paul calls himself an apostle to the gentiles we understand what he means in romans one when he says junia and andronicus and hey andronicus gets left out of the conversation everyone argues about junia no one talks about how good andronicus was as an apostle but they are prominent among the apostles that is when you take that preposition and you look at how it's used literally throughout the all of romans 16 it means uh in in terms of lot location within a select group in the lord you are a christian you know that sort of yeah. thing and so they are prominent among those who are apostles and there are there's one or two articles that have come out disputing that but most and complementarians i've talked to um don't accept the reading um, okay it seems to be in the majority report across the board is that um the only dispute is uh taking sent one as missionary and kind of leaving out the formal or the titular aspect of apostle. Gotcha. Um, Douglas Moo does that, Tom Schreiner does that, and they essentially admit and elsewhere that because of their view of a certain passage, this is better read this way. And I'm like, that's fine. I appreciate you just saying it like that. Some people don't say that. But gotcha. apostle is something Paul designates to himself. And if we only had Romans, we would know what an apostle is. It's Paul. And he calls Andronics and Sidonia apostles. There's no other reason for them to go, for us to then go, oh, but over here, the early church didn't have you know, the Roman church didn't go, oh, what well, apostle, that means um, in 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians, that means this. Or Philippians, yeah. it means this. They just had the word apostle. And Paul calling himself an apostle in Romans gives us a very clear example. It's someone who is sent on a mission from God with authority to preach to the Gentiles for conversion. And Andronicus, Andronicus and Junia, perhaps a couple, we don't know. Some people speculate. We don't know if they're married or not. Um, it's weird that they'd be paired, but not. But you know, early Christians were also notorious for men and women going together and doing things without without being married even though there's no sex involved which i think is very interesting it tells us about how we view things now um but i think there's very little evidence to suggest that they weren't apostles in the sense of maybe not the 12 because last i checked their names aren't peter uh, <laughs> but certainly among you would probably place them among the 72 that get sent out or the 500 that got sent out 1 corinthians 15. But Richard Bauckham has a really interesting hypothesis, and Ben Witherington has backed him up on this, and it's that Joanna and Junia are equivalent names in Latin and in Greek. And it is very common in the ancient world for someone to have, you might say, a Jewish name and a Greco-Roman or a Latin name. Dorcas Tabitha. Saul Paul. <laughs> yep, Paul, Saul. Paul didn't become Paul when he became a Christian, or Saul didn't become Paul when he became a Christian. He's, whenever he talks about himself, it's always Paul because he's writing to Gentiles. And so... Ben Witherington and Richard Bauckham make that point. I think it's very strong. And if that's the case, then you have Joanna, who was with Jesus in Luke chapter 8 and in Luke chapter 4. She was at the resurrection before Paul was, which is why Paul can say they were in Christ before me in Romans 16. 
And they are, of course, his kinsmen, his fellow Jews, which I think is very, it's one of those where if that's the case, then that gives us the historical Jesus has roots in the Roman church very early on, that that Jesus movement soared out, which tells us that if we just want to talk about missionaries, we are missing the point because we're talking about someone who sat at Jesus's feet, who uh, bankrolled his ministry and witnessed his resurrection before all the guys did, because they were at the tomb before you know Peter and all of them. It's one of those arguments I think is very interesting, and I think it's starting to really catch on because it makes sense of all the textual data, and it creates a strand between epistles and the life of Jesus. And we're always looking for stuff to, you know, how do we bring Jesus and Paul together? Are they so separate? It's like, well, yes, the same people that knew Paul, knew Jesus, Paul knows them too. And so that means the, uh, anyway, Cody, I can tell you want to say something. Go for it. I'll, I'll stop. Sure, sure. I was going to say, I mean, if I'm not mistaken, the term apostles also apply to Timothy and Barnabas. And um, it's the very least not clear that Barnabas is an original witness. I don't think that Timothy is. Timothy Timothy's seems to be picked up he, along the way. He, he learned from uh, uh, his, his grandmother and Eunice. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. So he's, uh, he's, he's a baby apostle. Yeah. So, yeah, and, and I think that, that suggests that there, there could be, we may want to differentiate between apostle in one sense and, and then in another sense and, and, and not maybe blur the lines too much. But Well, you um, have the, I would say you have the 12, and then you have kind of the early Christian strata, maybe is a better way of saying it, the early Christian yeah. movement. Um, and you also have apostles not being mentioned or being mentioned uh, alongside prophets uh, in one, uh, 1 Corinthians 12, I think it is. Apostles and prophets and all these sorts of things, too. So apostle was a, a live term in the first century that I think ceased in some sense, although I'm, I'm loath to say anything ceased in the first century because Jesus mm -hmm. is still alive. Um, yeah. But at the very least, we can say this is a very formal understanding of a word that is applied uh, not indiscriminately to people. And it seems to be applied very specifically to someone who is either a witness to the resurrection of Jesus or is in that line of witness to Jesus. And that would explain maybe Eunice and Lois and Timothy, perhaps. Mm -hmm. um, I know there's been some debate about Eunice and Lois in the pastorals about how far back they go. Um, yeah. We just don't have a lot of evidence for that. Um, so that, yeah, I, I think, uh, taking apostle in its kind of base sense, uh, Andronicus and Junia are equivalent to Paul and whatever Paul is, they are. And I think that's fair given how Paul uses apostles in Romans, that, that, mm -hmm. that word group, um, to go any less than that. I think we're just kind of, I think we're just, I think at that point, ideology is run the gamut. I'm not saying they're more than Paul, although Paul seems to suggest they were in Christ before him and they were in prison with him and all this sort of stuff. I'm just saying whatever Paul is, they are. And I think that's, I think, a very fair assessment of the actual evidence. And it, especially if she's junior, then you have that direct line between sure. Romans 16 and Luke's gospel, which makes sense given Luke and Paul's relationship with Luke Acts and the pastorals and the authorship there. So yeah. that might be another additional strand. But I, I can tell you want to say something, please. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, so, you know, when, when you know, the idea of apostle as church planter seems to have some, um, some weight to it. Um, particularly when you think about, you know, what these people like Paul and Barnabas are doing, they're on this sort of mission to go to these new places and start churches. But it's also, I think, kind of hard to say that that's not sort of a position of authority, right? You know, mm -hmm. if, if, if Junia is going out and saying, here's the gospel, I'm going to explain it to you, let's start a church, um, that feels like a teaching position, right? Yeah, I think so. And so I think for me, um, as someone who's a little bit of a fence sitter on this issue, um, I see all this evidence for, for egalitarianism that, that seems pretty strong. Um, and, and the the only kind of issues that I sort of have are that is that, well, it seems like maybe there's this like kind of one office that maybe isn't extended to women, 
and so and, and that becomes um you know i think that the, the person you were speaking with cam who made that point i mean i think that's a fair point and it's a question worth asking but at the end of the day you still have women in these very what you would kind of consider authoritative positions even if they aren't given a certain office maybe um and i think it is worth noting you know we a lot of times as christians we sort of think as paul is like well you know um they made a mistake when they gave when Judas died and they gave apostleship to Matthias because it should have been Paul. Paul was the guy that God picked, but Paul was not a witness of Jesus in you know at least his earthly ministry. The historical so, Jesus, we might say. Yeah, and so you know I think that you, you've got a pretty good point that is as authoritative as, as we want to make Paul, um, and I do think he's authoritative. I think maybe you could say uh, in Galatians he's arguing for some kind of a special uh, ministry and knowledge that maybe. Uh, gives him more weight or consideration. Um, I think you're right that he's basically putting himself in this position, not with the original 12 in a way, but like with the Junias and the Timothys and the, and the Barnabases. Mm -hmm. um, so th those are all, I think, really important points to, to consider in this, because I think it, it's kind of like, um, you know, like, like uh, I think of like the word inerrancy and, and, and I like the word um, and on some, on some, I don't actually like the word. I, I kind of like when people ask me if I believe in inerrancy, I say, well, sort of. And they'll say, well, what do you think is Chicago's statement of inerrancy? And I'll say, well, I think I agree with it, but they have qualified the word so much that it doesn't really sound like what you think inerrancy means when you first like hear it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and I think it's, yeah. it's um, you know, I, I sort of feel sort of similarly about this issue where like, I you know, complementarians will make an argument and I'll go, well, that sounds kind of reasonable and biblical, but it's like the devil's in the details. Once you start really looking at, What's happening in the church? Are women on an, on a level playing field with men? Are women teaching? Are women doing this? Are they being sent? Are they apostles? Are they church planners? It's like, well, yeah. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, what's really the difference? What are we talking about? Because um, to just say, well, they don't have this one office. It's like, okay, what's the significance of that? And, and, well, and I think it's 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 that's where I think that's what puts me sort of in the middle on this. Because it seems like there's a difference, but it's hard to pinpoint exactly what it is when you have all this evidence that there's no difference. <laughs> well, it's kind of like the case for conditionalism. I viewed, I viewed complementarianism and the case for eternal atonement very similarly. There's one or two passages and maybe one light of argument, maybe church history, where I'm like, yeah, eternal torment is by far the majority report through church history. Happy to concede that. Um, it has the weight of, I don't want to give you all Matthew 25, but let's say I'll give you Revelation. I don't think I'll give you Revelation. You know, at least those two passages in Revelation, but I'm not a believer in eternal torment because of those three those three aspects. I'm a believer in eternal torment or an addition, uh, annihilationism. Uh, I was a universalist. That was a fun time in my life, but no longer. Um, all good things come to an end, ironically enough. Um, but was that when you didn't accept the authority of the pastorals? Because that would make sense. To me. No, 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 no. The, the pastorals were very <laughs> very helpful for my universalism. No. Um, but it's one of those, okay, I've got this mountain of data here. I've got, I would argue, the original aspect of creation. I've got all this stuff here. I've got a certain line of argument here, which is weighty. You know, church history is not something to be thrown off. Uh, and hopefully I didn't do that. I was just saying I'm not qual as qualified as I'd like to speak on that. Right. I, I know my limits. Um, and I've, you've got two very intense passages in Revelation. That should give you pause. You shouldn't just go, oh, this is easy. But it should make us go, okay. It's, am I treating this issue in terms of weight and evidence fairly? And I'm not saying I'm throwing that at you, Cody. I'm throwing that at myself because I'm speaking of myself here. 
It's like, okay, I'm not, am I treating the evidence in the way that I would treat any other issue? It's like, I'm not a cessationist because of 1 Corinthians 13. I don't, you know, I think the wealth of evidence supports continuationism. You know, having a troubling passage is troubling, but it doesn't mean, it's just like, well, I'll have to wrestle with this until either it fits the data or I just live in the tension of being as humble as I can and learning as much as I can and not, <laughs> and not settling for, you know, easy, an easy understanding. Because, I mean, I, I was I was an egalitarian for a year and I still didn't know what to do with Ephesians 5, you know, and I'm sitting yeah. there going like, this has to somehow fit. Because all this other stuff seems to say this, and you know, granting me that all this other stuff does say that, just for the sake of argument, all this other stuff says that I don't know what to do with this. And then I did more research, I did more stuff on word studies and all that sort of stuff, and I said, like, oh, this tweak, this tweak, oh, there it is, boom, done. Um, which is why I think there needs to be a lot of humbleness and a willingness not to change your mind too quickly. Um, Cody, you know all about that as well as I do, and Cam, I'm sure you do too. Um, <laughs> changing your mind very quickly is not uh, a smart thing to do. Um, you yeah. should, you should be disturbed enough to change your mind very, very slowly. Yeah. That's, that's how it worked why, with, uh, yeah, with, uh, conditionalism for me. I'm preaching. So please, <laughs> <laughs> but that's how it worked with conditionalism for me because I had no need to change my view of hell. Yeah. I had completely justified it in my mind and it was, it, I didn't change overnight. I read and I read, I will say there was probably a, God, I don't even know between a five and seven year period where I thought of it. And I was like, I'm in the middle. I don't know what to say. And I was like, but I lean this way, you know? Um, so I definitely agree with that. I have, and, and that's, it's funny as you keep saying things and I'm like, I really want to ask about this and I want to talk about that. And I'm like, we just don't have time for me to ask all my questions. Um, but I do think you being a past universalist, we should probably have that conversation uh, later on my because, phd is on the subject so it's it'd be a good time well and, and especially since i've never heard a good heard a good i've never heard a good argument for universalism like never every time anyone's ever brought it up it's been a, a very good, poor a argument. good biblical argument yeah yeah because I, I can imagine a lot of like good theological arguments but yeah it's a little it's a little tougher to <laughs> right i'll give You're you one right now i'll either. give you one and i'll give you a 10 second one okay reform theology down to the bone Universal atonement. Yeah. Well, no, of course, if you're if you're if you're within that yeah. framework, absolutely. Yeah. If you if you're reformed, universalism is very you know, bar all of them. It is very easy to affirm universalism if you're a Calvinist, because right. you are you are very close to it. I'm not saying all Calvinists are all, anything like right. that. It is you know under Wesleyan or Arminian paradigm, you have sorry, it's it's human free will, it's participation, it's all faith, it's all this sort of stuff. It's sorry, that's salvation is in some sense contingent on human freedom. You, it's possible universalism could be true, but in Calvinism, if you take unconditional election, irresistible grace, total depravity, unlimited atonement, and the saving act of Jesus Christ and perseverance of the saints, mm -hmm. that is a very strong theological and biblical argument. It's just I'm not a Calvinist. And I can't I don't, I don't <laughs> accept a lot of the paradigms and all that sort of stuff. Well, and that's something I've said. I said, you know, th that's my problem with the argument for universalism is it's every time I've heard it and why I say it's not a great argument because I don't think – Calvinism is particularly, I mean, it's a strong argument, but I don't think mm -hmm. it's like, I cannot justify it. It is a, it's a perfectly rational, reasonable view that I think is wrong. Just like I yeah. think other views are Christian views that are held by wonderful people that I just think are wrong. And I'll see them in heaven probably before I get there. 
I'll probably yeah. have to go through the gates a little slower. Um, <laughs> but no, but I've, I've said these are the opposite sides of the coin because, you know, a universalist in, in some way, because a lot of the argument that I hear, and I'll, I'll stop after this just because we'll go too long. And my friend Brad, who I do the propaganda report, is waiting for me to do an episode of that after this. Um, <laughs> but um, you, I don't know why Calvinists aren't universalists because when you when I look into that and the, the the argument that universalists make that I've heard the most is God always gets what he wants. He is sovereign. Yep. What he wants, he gets. And that that's the same base as Calvinism. And so the same sovereignty model, which I think is. Yep. I, I don't I disagree with the, that sovereignty model. Um, mm -hmm. I, I do like the the kind of ship. I, I forget what it's called. The ship sovereignty model makes sense to me. Um, yeah. But um, if God gets what he wants, then and the framework of Calvinism is there, then that means everyone is saved eventually. Yep. Or and at least so that, if you take those two tracks and make a train yeah. out of it, there you go. Right. I, well, and, and the the opposite is true as well. It's just it's I just that's why I don't think it's fully coherent is because either way it's, co it's go, coherent it's, in the way that and this I'm not throwing Calvinists under the bus. So forgive me, Chris and all them. It is coherent if you accept a certain bit of data. And I'm not talking about a little bit. I'm talking about a if you have a circle and you put all your stuff, it's easy to have a great systematic when you got a, a circle that you can kind of put stuff in. And, I, and I'm guilty of this too. I'm not, I'm not throwing anyone on them. But if you have Calvinism and you got that, a little bit more expansive, and you have universalism. And it's one of those where it's like under a certain paradigm or hermeneutical kind of or theological method, it totally, like you just got to make these other pieces fit. And for me, reading Second Temple Judaism uh, was one of the things that made me go, oh boy, they are not universalists. And if Paul's a universalist, he's the only one that's got this because you don't find this in, in Jesus. I mean, you find it in John, perhaps, you know, some elements of John. But it's like, you don't find this in this historical Jesus. You don't find this in the early Christian proclamation. You certainly don't find it in Hebrews. And so it's one of those where I was like, well, either they missed the boat on this or um, Paul's the only one who came up with this. And okay. of course, you know, there's debates about that, but um, given that I think, well, anyway, there's way to go, but yeah. I don't want to take it more. Um, <laughs> uh, Cody, before I ask the big question and wrap up, is there anything else you want to hit? Yeah. Um, um, Nick, um, if your position is correct, then why did God in his providence uh, arrange for you to show up an hour late? No, I'm just kidding. The, um, <laughs> so what I would say I think is you should ask Cam that question. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Fair point. Um, so, um, so I kind of fall like in between sort of a soft egalitarianism and soft complementarianism. And I used to be more strongly in the, in the complementarian camp, but, um, I've always taken seriously the biblical commands to love my wife, put her interests before mine. Mm -hmm. And so that's in the marriage context, but also you can look at what leaders in the church are called to do, which is the sort of servant leadership. And, and, but, but maybe looking at just the marriage example, like um, in my marriage, we, we've always worked together to come up with mutually satisfactory solutions to conflicts. And so while I've had some like complimentary, complimentary leanings, it's hard for me to point to how it's impacted power dynamics in my marriage. And, and um, I guess maybe my question, like a final question is what do you see as the practical impacts of taking either of these views, both in the church and the home, because for me, I feel like a lot of people could look at my look at my marriage and say, "Well, he must be an egalitarian," um, but I'm not quite in that camp. Um, but and I think similarly, if if a church looks very authoritarian, it's not being very biblical. So then, at what point are we talking about? What does authority mean? I, I think that's a really good question. And my thirty second, thirty thousand foot answer, and we could spend this could be its own podcast. So 
you know, yeah. give me grace, uh, chat, for not saying everything that I could say. Um, I think we have a very flawed notion of what power looks like, just generally speaking. The New Testament envisions power as Christ taking the form of a slave, emptying himself, and or I should say humiliating himself, and taking the form of the, a slave, and, take, and being born in human likeness, sharing in the human condition fully. When power, and this is a problem issue, of course, we see in politics, everything is conceived of in terms of power. And there's nothing wrong with at least being aware of dynamics. Like, I, I get that 100%. But we don't have a Christocentric model of marriage. We have a power-based model of marriage. And it becomes about uh, who has control of the power gun to force the other to do what you want to do. And the New Testament does not envision that sort of model. The 1 Corinthians 7 model is you don't even have authority over your own body because your wife or your husband does which tells us a bit about sexual dynamics. It tells us that do not deprive one another except by mutual assent and prayer, which tells us that wives and men, wives and husbands, have spiritual authority in their in their lives. That is something they share. But also it tells us that sexual desire is good. That And actually, and this is one of the rare things in the ancient world, Paul is affirming there that women have sexual desire and it's good. He's treating them as sexual agents. But he also says this is to be done together. This is to be yeah. done uh, and yielding to one another, not using your body for your own pleasure, but looking to the needs of your spouse. And I think um, if we went by a one, if we integrate a one Corinthians seven and Ephesians five, for example, and I actually tried this in my book, I don't think I was successful in it. Um, we don't. We those passages are fixed on sanctification, on holiness, on making the other into the image of Christ. That's not something the husband does for his wife. It's something the wife and the husband do together for the sake of one another and for their kids if you have kids. If one of the parents is a Christian, then the, the whole batch is holy is kind of the joke that Paul tells in 1 Corinthians 7. Um, who do you, you know, wife, do you think you would say, you might save your unbelieving husband? And husband, you may save your unbelieving wife. But if they consent to be with one another, if there is mutual accountability, there's mutual emptying, there's mutual deference. If you're, th if everyone's thinking about who's got the power of gun, you don't have a marriage, you have an, a, a subverted contract where you occasionally screw each other. You know, it's like, it's not, and I think for an egalitarian model, I would say, you know, for me, an egalitarian model does not look at power as the thing that you have. It's the thing that you give up for the sake of the other. And if you're looking at Jesus as your model, you're both told to imitate him. In Philippians 2, have the same mindset. That's not for men. That's not for women. That's for the whole church. So even just including the whole church and having the same mindset of Christ, who didn't use what he had for himself, but gave everything up for the sake of the church. Um, and so I think it tells husbands that um, there's a demand of you, whatever you conceive of, let's say an egalitarian, if you believe you're the head of the household, then you give up your headship for the sake of your wife. And wives, you are to love your husband as Christ has loved the church and to, uh, to empty yourself for him. And you do that yeah. together. And so the egalitarian model of marriage doesn't deny differences. It, it, it essentially asserts what God has called you to be in marriage as a man, as a woman, is for your good. And that doesn't include hierarchy although it may include hierarchy in certain aspects. For example, uh, he does the finances. She watches the kids. And as long as there's harmony in that understanding, that's completely fine. If he wants to be a stay-at-home dad and he feels called to do that, and she works outside the home, fine. But there is an ascent, there's an, a mutual empowering to that that goes for the sake of the other. And I think churches and marriages become toxic, and I'm not limiting myself to complementary marriages or churches. I'm speaking more principally. I see this more principally in complementary marriages and churches, but not exclusively so. So we all know Willow Creek. I'm not giving egalitarians a pass on this. Yeah. Um, you, you have no idea how 
angry and cry. Like, I cried like a little girl, like not not like when I read that story, like about Bo Hybels and all that. Like that was enough. That I'm like, ooh. Yeah. Anyway, if your marriage is built on who has power, um, you will inevitably have a marriage and a church that is based on who has the power gun and how that gets used. Yeah. And God help you if you have a madman <laughs> wielding the gun of power. In an egalitarian model, the question is not on who has the power gun; it's who empties themselves for the sake of the other. Yeah, I think Cody, you're right. It's you give up for the sake of other. Thirty seconds. Yep, that's how we do things. Thirty seconds. <laughs> never give a pastor or former pastor thirty seconds. That turns into three points in forty-five minutes later. So, uh, hopefully, that begins to answer your question, Cody. Yeah, I I think that one of the things we need to remember, and it's why, um, even though the uh, oneness Pentecostals would call my beard and tattoos, you know, anathema, um, I do want to get a tattoo of the slain lamb in revelation five, because when you see this, this image, when you see this vision uh, or read it rather, um, John talks about how, you know, there's the, the, the scroll with seven seals that cannot be opened by anyone. Mm -hmm. uh, no one has come forth. And then the angel in John gets really sad about this. And uh, an angel says, no, but look, uh, the lion of the tribe of Judah is here to open the scroll. He has been deemed worthy. And when he looks, he does not see a lion. He does not see the traditional image of power, which is based in violence. Rather, he sees a really weird-looking slain lamb, showing that the true power that we have, the true power that Christ had, was in his sacrificial death and his, his absolute giving of himself wholly to, to us and to the world, for the world. And so... If we're not viewing our marriage or if we're not viewing our church in the same way, we are drastically missing the point, in my opinion. So I have two last questions for you. Make them quick. Um, I can tell my wife is uh, trying to keep the kiddo from tearing her head off right now. No, I'm, I'm with you. Two la last two questions uh, and, and just as quickly as possible. My first question is uh, I named the episode of this show in order to make it um, provocative which was women know your place. So as shortly as you can, succinctly, um, what is women's place? Wherever God has called them to be. Kitchen, pulpit, presidency, wherever you're called to be. Okay. And then my final question is the big question that we ask at the end of every show that we do. Um, this show used to be a political show. We used to do libertarian nonsense. And I got real tired of it, and uh, God called me out. Like he straight up called me out. He because I felt when I was younger that I was called to communicate truth, and that was like the big calling on my life. And so I get uh, uh, I don't know why I'm going into this, but I'll, let me go into it. I was sitting at my wife's grandmother's house, and God just slapped me sideways. That's always fun because I I had tweeted out um, kind of in a way to. Because I was annoyed with someone else, um, you know, seek ye first the kingdom and his righteousness and all of these things will be added unto you. And there was a couple of different things that I kind of learned from this moment, but seek ye first the kingdom of God. And so God was kind of slapping me and going, you have this gift and this calling in your life. And instead you are preaching nonsense. You're preaching things that don't matter. And I was like, oh, damn. <laughs> And so that that was a big shift. But when we when we swatch, swapped it over from the uh, po political model to this kind of wide ranging, but also very Christian model, um, we 
did it right in the middle of the pandemic. So there were a lot of people that had lost family members that, that had lost their jobs that had yeah. fallen back into uh, addictions or whatever, a lot of really desperate, despairing people. And I am a firm believer in hope. I believe in the resurrection. That's that's what's happening at the end. I have a lot of hope in that. Uh, but what we decided is that me and Jessica was that this was a show of hope. And so we wanted to share hope with our audience. So here's the question. Regardless of scale, global, national, local, whatever, personal, what is something right now that gives you the hope and motivation to carry on doing the good work? What's wh What makes you not a a nihilist and a cynic okay so this is going to be a little serendipitous um i've been really struggling with depression i have my whole life uh i had a i've had a truly terrible year uh it has been i, I don't know if i can guess it has been the worst year i think i've ever had and this is the year where my my or this is the second year my son was born so he's two he was born at the beginning of the pandemic which tells you in the midst of all that how bad the year's been essentially yeah. I lost my job in ministry won't get into that but it was it was a had to move had nothing basically still don't working a part-time job trying to find ministry trying to be faithful uh it has been a truly awful year and i was actually asking god that question over the past week like am i actually called to this this ministry thing am i actually like should i even be involved in in any of this and i used words i normally don't use but i i used am i am i Am I supposed to be doing any of this? And I haven't heard anything, mostly because I don't think God speaks to me usually. I'm always kind of left to listen to other people, which is why this is a little fortuitous. Yeah. Um, what gives me hope? Uh, one thing that I think I have to keep coming back to is the very nature of what God did for us and how I see that uh, in the life of my two-year-old son. Um, yeah. Born at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, he was not out for about two minutes and they had to whisk him away from us and take him to the NICU because he had swallowed a bunch of stuff and was having a tough time breathing. Yeah. Not to mention you got the global pandemic and the sky is falling outside. Um, and looking back on that, that God can somehow in God's way, in a way that I will never understand until I'm at the other side of eternity. And even then, I don't know. Take the bull crap that we do and just somehow bring a diamond out of that. Yeah is something that I'll never understand. But then again, that's the heart of resurrection. It yeah. was dead and gone. And yet the line of the tribe of Judah is alive. Yeah. And so uh, for me, um, seeing uh, my two-year-old son run around healthy, well, he's not healthy now. He's got a, a snotty nose and stuff. <laughs> seeing my two-year-old two boy, little boy run around, rambunctious, full of energy, vivified by life. Um, seeing my wife, um, begin to fulfill a calling that she has to teach in ministry and seminary and stuff like that. Um, being comfortable knowing that maybe God is at work in other people's lives and I'm along for their ride now. Um, I don't know if it gives me hope, but it gives me a, a longing to see where God might take me. Yeah. And that's perhaps a little vague for y'all. Um, if I get any more specific, I might cry. I'm not much yeah. of a crier, but it's been that kind of year where I just might. Um, yeah. But yeah, that's I think that gives me hope. And that was not quick. But uh, <laughs> given how life has gone and the question you asked, given what I've been going through today, especially, I'm like, that deserves more than 30 seconds. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That, that one can always take as long as it needs to. Um, and what's fun about that is 
the question comes with so many different answers. Mm -hmm. um, one of my favorites was uh, Kate Cheryl, the, the girl we talked to last year about death, uh, was just like my puppy. And it's it's it can go from puppy to the resurrection and in the end, like it's <laughs> it's that wide and that. And, and that's what I like to do. I like to hold on to these little these little moments because, you know, I've dealt with anxiety. I've dealt with depression. I've dealt with different things. But it's like if I take a look at any one of my kids, um, but especially always my youngest and my little and my my girl who's right above above her, it's worth every bit of pain I've been through. When I look at my wife, same same thing, my my boys everything i've been through has been worth it and it only gets better at the end so yes well hopefully in heaven there's written house 100 bottled and bond <laughs> i'm saying uh, um, the, i haven't uh, had written the whiskey, that, the, whisk, the whiskey that shoots back if you uh catch the joke. <laughs> i i have not had that oh written house <laughs> <laughs> there we go political joke i'm great there we go is that Sorry. for 20 bucks 21 bucks uh, at least here in cali it, it's pretty good yeah, well, I mean, I, I, I have a, I, I'm my the daily drinker, which I don't drink every day. It's just the best way to describe it is mm -hmm. Buffalo Trace for me. I, I'm good with Buffalo, but Rittenhouse has an extra bit of spice and an extra bit of smoothness for me that Buffalo doesn't. But if you put Buffalo in those my everyday, I'd be very happy with Buffalo. Yeah, Bullet has a a nice little rye head on it that that I like as seconds. well. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. No, no, you're no. good. I'm just, I'm just, I'm, I'm imagining chats like thirty seconds. Damn. <laughs> I, I love I love bourbon. Uh, okay, so um, to finish up, I'm just going to tell people where to find you. You add anything you want to, um, and then I'll I'll let you um, go off the screen. Um, usually, I'm like, hey, if you want to hang around and talk, we can do that. But I have plans, so <laughs> I can't this time. Um, but uh, if if anyone wants to, well, first, thank you for coming on. Thank you for, for sharing this little bit of your story. Thank again. you. Yeah, I, I'd like to talk about the universalism thing because that that fascinates me. Um, but if anyone wants to find you, um, you have a YouTube new Testament theologist, which you can search that. I don't, I didn't see a specialized link. Um, I don't know if you have one, I, but I can, uh, I can, I can send it to you. Okay. Um, but, uh, so yeah, new Testament theologist, you can search for that at this point. Um, but you also have a Twitter at Nick Quint that's at n-i-c-k-q-u-i-e-n-t all right and is there anything else you want to add to that anything else you want people to know about you um no that's that's about it um yeah well no, just thank you for having me on and cody it's always it's always it's always a blessing and a blast uh if you ever want me to come back on and, and wax eloquent about bourbon or scotch or new testament stuff i'm happy to do it i'm, I'm all about it well i i really do appreciate you very much and i'll be praying for you and your family in this moment because it's i know i'm in a not an extremely similar circumstance but i'm in it right now so yeah. i fully understand so thank you so much uh i'll let you go uh it was good thank you thanks guys god bless you too all right so for the rest of you let's let, let's let's roll on out for me um let's talk about what's what's coming up because that's always the most exciting thing for me. I'm, I'm, we're, we're booked through September. I've got to start looking, looking into my spooky season for October. I've got a couple of leads out there for that. Um, I also have the first week of November planned now uh, because of what happened with him being late. It's kind of funny. Um, but next week we're having uh, Josh Hires on the show. When I say we, I mean me. Um, this one will just be me and Josh. I won't have a, 
a co-host sub in or anything like that. Did I freeze? I, I see you. Okay, cool. I know I'm hearing you, but you're things. doing this. So I think you... <laughs> yeah, I froze. Okay, okay, so don't worry about that. If you can hear me, that's fine. Um, so next week, we're going to have Josh Hires on. Uh, Josh was a worship leader at the college that I went to. And he, um, he traveled and he was, a, he was someone that I really looked up to. Um, and I'm excited to catch up with him. He had a lot of stuff happen in his life since. And so we're going to catch up. I'm going to talk about a project that I want to work on. Um, there's going to be a lot of cool stuff with that. Right after that, we're going to have David Gornoski back on to talk about mimetic theory and uh, get deeper into that. Um, right after that, we're going to have um, Mr. Elias Dummer back on the musician that we spoke to, uh, previously. And we're going to talk about the charismatic renewal and, and because he grew up in Toronto at the Toronto blessing in kind of an Anglican area. And I'm very curious about his, his viewpoint. So we're going to, we're going to talk about that a little bit. And then finally, um, I finally found someone who can do it. Um, there's so much, um, Torah observance and Judaizing going on on the TikTok app right now. It's wild. And so I wanted to speak to someone who had been in the Torah observant movement and left to go back to regular Christianity, right? And so I finally found someone, and she also happens to have been a witch in the past. So it's going to be a really cool conversation. Her name is Kat. Uh, so Bele she was Bele Torah observant and was also a witch? She was a witch before the Torah observance. Yeah, but then she but she became Torah observant and said, "Oh yes, I, <laughs> let's burn the witches." As I right, it's really <laughs> weird. Yeah, okay. I think it'll be super interesting. Okay, um, fair enough. And so, if you want to follow Cody, I forgot to write these things down. So you tell them where you want them to go. Cam, listen, no one's going to know how to spell where you can follow me. Um, <laughs> so it's cantusfirmus.com, cantus-firmus. C-A-N-T-U-S dash F-I-R-M-U-S dot com. Uh, you can also search uh, on your podcast feed for Campus Firmus. Uh, and hopefully you won't just find stuff about music theory. Uh, but yes, that's me. Awesome. And uh, so beyond that for me, uh, remember to go to patreon.com slash the mad ones to join us and join a conversation. And, and uh, I think I'm going to set a zoom up so we can talk about this subject together later. Um, also go to wearethemadones.com slash store and you can pick up a new t-shirt, an old t-shirt, a tank top, or a mug. The new mugs are really cool. I'm really ex excited about them. And I have to say, as we were sitting here talking, Cody ordered one of the mugs and I want you to be like Cody. Yeah. So you didn't give me enough notice or I would have had a t-shirt or something for this, well, I, this podcast. I made them and I ordered the, um, the new shirt with the sample or whatever. And yeah. it was, it's not here yet. I think it's coming tomorrow. I'm, I was so disappointed. Okay. Um, but uh, no, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm stoked. I like, I really like what we did. I really like what my wife did. I'm very proud of her. Um, but if you want to follow me on Twitter, you can, you can at, at ham Carlos. Um, if you're listening and would rather watch when we are live Thursday nights at 8 30 PM Eastern, unless something crazy happens like today, um, youtube.com slash the mountain ones. That's the best way. If you want to be a part of the uh, conversation. Um, so Rockfin, Odyssey, Rumble, all of these things, they don't hook up with uh, StreamYard quite as I wish they would. But if you want to be a part of the, the conversation, youtube.com slash the mad ones. And like I said, we're also on Odyssey and Rockfin. Uh, and finally, uh, if you're watching and would rather not look at my face, uh, you can go to any podcatcher, type in the mad ones, 
or you can go to wearethemadones.com and just listen straight from there and download it directly. Whatever you want to do. If you want to just archive everything I've said for the past, what, six years, you can do that. Um, <laughs> uh, but that's it. That's all. Is there is there anything else you want to throw out there before I hit this this outro button? Let's do it, man. I'm ready to go to bed. <laughs> I feel you. I feel you. So the rest of you, lovely people in Quest, oh. I, I I love you, buddy. I got I got one thing. If people want to watch you. We're, uh, you're doing something right after this. What? Are, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm. <laughs> if he hasn't given up already, um, I'm supposed to be going on to the propaganda report with Brad Binkley. Um, you can watch that on Rockfin. You can watch that on YouTube. Just search for Brad Binkley and it'll come up. Um, and it'll also be on Twitter. So uh, I'm gonna go jump into that now. But as it were, um, dear listeners, uh, you have a chance to be a light in the world, so go light it up. <laughs>